coming up on this episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, we continue our Russian roulette retrospective franchise series looking at Hellraiser up on this part two. We will be looking at Hellraisers 4, 5 and 6. Let's see if we can continue our torment of guest hosts in the Russian roulette fashion but before we get into that it's year four motherfuckers on the podcast under the stairs and you know what that means this time it's war warning the podcast under the stairs is not safe for work we'll feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners may find offensive brought to you in conjunction with legion podcast network welcome to the podcast under the stairs Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is episode 111. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. Episode 111 continues our Russian Roulette retrospective series looking at the Hellraiser franchise. This is part two of said Hellraiser franchise retro and we are looking at parts four, five and six with another three fantastic guest hosts chosen at random from the Bowl of Doom. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting run that has now me officially clocked in all of those Hellraiser movies in one week, um, which is I was going to say impressive, but at the same time wholly depressing. Uh, I got through all those movies and we're just finishing up the last parts of the recording of all the shows. So the episode that is dropping today, which is Monday, will be this very one here, part two, and then in one week's time. We will be doing the final part, the concluding part of this uh, Hellraiser retrospective, looking at parts 7, 8 and 9, closing that out. Another quick update, it looks like realistically in the next two weeks time we will be dropping the final instalment of Baz v Leatherface as well, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. We are two reviews into that series, one left to go and then that is us done putting that one to bed, very much looking forward to, to finishing that one off as well. If you were one of the few and the proud that checked out our live stream Thursday Thursday this week, you will know that we announced what the Summer Teapots Top 10 series is going to be for 2017. I'm going to explain it at the end of this show, but I'm very excited for this one. This one has the potential to be an absolute fucking headache <laughs> for me but at the same time something that will spark a lot of debate and a lot of fun on the T-Putts Facebook page. So I wanted to keep this intro nice and short we have another three Hellraiser movie reviews to get through here with some fantastic guests so I'm going to take my first break of this show you're going to hear promos for shows that I love you're going to hear the trailer for our first movie review this is, oh, that's right, Hellraiser Bloodline. This is part four in the franchise. You will also hear the random selection of my next special guest. I'm going to be right back to discuss that movie with my guest right after this. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful? 
thought-provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities. Then you've got the wrong show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com. Centuries ago, a toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. A gift that would bring enchantment to all who possessed it. He never dreamed that this simple toy was the key to the gates of hell. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Now, centuries later, a scientist has unlocked its secret. And the battle for the future of mankind is about to be fought across the boundaries of time. Welcome back. So that's right, you heard the trigger fire, which means we have selected our next special podcast host joining me on this Hellraiser Russian Roulette franchise retrospective. And this one's a heavy hitter to be sure. Um, He is a very, very good friend of mine, has one of the most popular shows on the Legion Podcast Network. Not just one, but two. That's how popular this guy is. He's like that. Not, I'm not happy enough claiming the top spot with one show. I'm wanting another show right there with him. One of legitimately the nicest people you'll ever meet online doing podcasts. It is the fantastic Ricky Morgan from Hail Ming Power Hour and Short Bus Cinema. How are you doing, sir? Doing excellent. Chris, you may change your mind after we get through this movie, but... <laughs> You, I, I, you, I saw, I saw the, the, the messages flying about on the internet. You, you might think I like this movie a lot more than I do. <laughs> no, I, I imagine you and I are pretty solid on movies, so I think we probably have a lot of the same things. It's just I think my my vision of movies has changed a little bit over the past month or so because of Short Bus, so we'll see how this works out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would imagine doing a show like that um, would make you appreciate some movies that you have said in the past were bad and then you realise that there's a lower standard of bad. Absolutely, no? <laughs> because uh, 
<laughs> we just reviewed the the uh, the old 1996-97 Fantastic Four, which was never released because it was oh. so bad. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's actually more entertaining than, than the big budget ones that they released. <laughs> yeah, this is what happens. I think um, the, the, the worry is at times they think uh, they think they know what the audience wants, um, and turns out they don't always do. <laughs> um, sometimes it's better to take a risk and a gamble on on maybe hitting the mark. Like some of the, some of the biggest. The, the movies that stand out most are the ones that people take risks on because no one expects them to be as big as they are and then they achieve that. Um, so I, I think it's quite interesting when these things happen. That's a great show, by the way. I'll just take a couple of seconds before <laughs> oh, we get thanks. into this movie review. Um, I mean, I am sampling a short amount of what I consider bad movies to do this franchise. I'm just like, but you guys are legitimately, you and Johnny Krug, who is equally one of my favourite podcasters around, um, are just going oh, yeah. out your way to pick horrible movies. Just yeah. the, the worst and sitting down and, and having to watch them for a start, which you need a medal for. I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, but, then, but then go on and, and record and you're doing it in the best possible way. It's such a fun, enter- entertaining show. And you guys are already on like episode seven or eight, I think now. Is it as yeah, as that? Yeah. Jesus. We just, yeah, just did eight and... Uh... And the the bad thing is, is it's almost like we already hit, <laughs> we already hit the pinnacle of, of what we were looking for. So it's like, okay, do we end the show? Do we keep going? Uh, what do we do here? Because I'll just say, uh, Battlefield Earth. It took me. I had to stop the movie four times to get through. It's a really, it. really, really bad movie. I'd, I'd I'd always heard it was, but I just didn't believe how bad it was. And we're putting this thing up against homemade movies. We're putting it up against, <laughs> you know. Slum, uh, Last Lumber Party and, and Splatter University. These things are, you know, direct-to-video pieces of crap that cost maybe five thousand dollars to make. Battlefield Earth, is, Battlefield Earth is worse, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, as a legit, I remember when it came out as well. I didn't see. I don't. I can't remember if it actually did get released in the cinema over here, um, or if it's if it went. I remember where because it came out when I was. Um, working in the VHS store and I think it was at a time where John Travolta was doing things like Swordfish and stuff so it was like Travolta's right. trying to make another name for himself again but I remember at the time not knowing that much about uh, Scientology but knowing that L. Ron Hubbard had wrote the story that the movie was based on and obviously subsequently since we know that um, yeah. what's his face Travolta's heavily into Scientology so uh, yeah, it's uh, just a, just an awful concept for a movie, just an awful movie. So, <laughs> well it's done for just, you yeah. for reviewing it with Johnny. I think that was uh, that's that. Once again, a medal might not be enough. Maybe a giant check. <laughs> you know, one of those ones with the handout when you win the lottery. Uh, maybe that's what you need. <laughs> a giant check. Uh, so, the, the thing about that too, it makes it fun, is because it is you know, short bus is pretty much totally listener driven so they they request the movies we check them out mm-hmm. and you know we get people sending stuff for like no man you don't understand bad movies <laughs> <laughs> you know what do you mean you, you think ninja 3 is a good movie yes compared to these yes <laughs> yes is the answer <laughs> so to that right, question <laughs> right right opposite of hell ming where we take you know fan requests and we just never do them so <laughs> we cover all the bases between the two shows <laughs> see that's <sighs> podcast visionary sir a visionary um right but unfortunately uh or fortunately for the listeners out there um you you got a an opportunity you flung your name in 
Um, yes. And you flung your name in knowing, like, see some of the ones that had originally put their name forward as potentially for this franchise did not understand that there was going to be a Russian roulette style draw. Um, I think by the time you put your name in, I was already kind of floating the idea of that's what was going to happen. So um, it's, it, it was bravery on your part. Um, and some people would say you gambled and kind of won compared to what some of the other hosts are going to have to cover on this retrospective. But we landed on Hellraiser 4 Bloodline from 1996, which yep. I, I remember when this one came out as well. I remember like not being the biggest fan of... The Hellraiser movies. Certainly, I'd seen the first two. I'd never seen the third one. Um, I remember the first two from back being kind of like early teens, and remember very much that front cover with Pinhead for the original movie, and just saying, "I need to see this movie." You know, like twelve-year-old Duncan yeah. was desperate to see it. But nineteen ninety-six was about the same time. It was the year before I actually started getting into a bit of the metal. Um, and by 1996, I was already listening to bands like Slayer, and Slayer had a song which was featured mm-hmm. on this movie, which was the aptly named uh, Bloodline. So they had this song that came out, um, and I was like, that, oh, wait one second, we have Slayer and Pinhead in the same music video? Dear God Almighty, I need to see this movie. <laughs> um, and I remember watching it at the time and just going like that, we're in space, really? 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 Yeah. It's the fourth yeah. movie, and what it's really, um, and it's funny. I, I have grown to enjoy the movie the older I get, which is weird because with a lot of the nineties horror movies, it tends to work the other way. <laughs> you like them first time you see them, and as time goes on, you kind of go off them. Um, so let's do a little bit of info on this one, and let's just get right into this one, Ricky. I'm really looking forward to chatting about this, especially because yeah. I know there there may be common ground here, but there may be ground where. For the first time in podcast history, me and you might come down on different sides of an argument. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if my little heart can take it. I'll be honest, or my listeners either. They'll be like spitting their drinks out everywhere. Um, so this movie is directed by uh, Kevin Yeager, um, and he was surprise, surprise, a special effects and makeups artist, um, which seems to be the way a lot of this has went in the Hellraiser kind of canon as the later the movies went on the more the directors that were involved minus the the, the fifth one but had been involved with like the makeup side of things and then just been given the franchise like that if right. you can if you can do this complicated pinhead makeup you can film a movie which that's insane um but, uh, have, have you seen the list of movies he did the effects for yeah it's incredible it's like a who's who of... I mean, Friday the 13th, Part 4, mm-hmm. Nightmare on M Street, 2, 3, and 4. He did one of my favorites, Trick or Treat. Yeah, no, not, I know. Not, not the newest movie, the old 80s Trick or Treat. Yeah, the metal one. <laughs> it's just, I, the guy worked on, so he's, he was around, like, some yeah. of the the best in the genre. So, I mean, the guy has has been involved and would, I would imagine, being on set, have seen movie production, etc. So he's, he's got a good grim in it. He's not one of these, you know, kind of lucked into it because he was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser um, so, <laughs> sort of person. This guy's, you know, he's got a background in in, in, um, in horror cinema. Uh, the movie itself, though, uh, has a fairly interesting lineup. Uh, we've got Bruce Ramsey playing multiple roles. We've got uh, Valencia Vargas, Doug Bradley, obviously, as Pinhead, Charlotte Cl- uh, Chatton, Adam Scott, Kim Myers, uh, Mickey Cottrell, uh, what was really funny watching this one back and noticing that Adam Scott is in this movie, and this is the first time I've ever noticed mm-hmm. that this is Adam Scott. 
I don't know why I'd never picked up on that before, considering kind of how big he is now. Um, right, yeah. Never never picked up on that one. Uh, we've got Cortland Mead and some other po- folk. We're just going to jump ahead here. Uh, synopsis is listed on IMDb. In the 22nd century, a scientist attempts to right the wrongs his ancestor created. The puzzle box that opens gates of hell and unleashes Pinhead and his Cenobite legions. So, <laughs> like we said just a little minute ago this one is set in space and there is a kind of golden rule that now flies around that when your franchise goes to space that tends to be the death of your franchise and I can see where some I can't think of many except Jason X which I love dearly um, I can't think of many maybe the, the Leprechaun movie goes to space I think <laughs> right and that seemed to be the theme there for a little bit it's like well uh, we've killed everybody we can on Earth. Where else can we go? <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the case of this one, if we're looking at the movies that I've already covered as part of this franchise, the first and second movies flow directly into each other, but then the third one technically flows into the... At least they're trying some sort of weird continuity, and this is yeah. no exception. They link this movie in the middle section back to the end of part three, uh, which is interesting but we get the backstory about the origins of the box. Um, we very quickly disregard the horrible CD Cenobite, the flamethrowing Cenobite, and Mr. <laughs> Cameraman Cenobite, uh, and, you know, smoking tracheotomy Cenobite, and <laughs> douchebag with the gears in his head Cenobite. Though they disappear sadly, much to the groans of of many a Hellraiser fan. Uh, and we set this one, like I say, in the future, and we follow, essentially, the the Le Marchand, or Merchant family. Um, all incarnations played by Bruce Ramsey. And we go back to how the box was created, and we carry it through, essentially, three different time periods, um, leading up to this, this final showdown, end game, as Paul Merchant calls it, at the start. Um... Right, let's let's just let's just hit this hard here. I know that there's certain things that you are going to tell me you don't really like or dislike about this movie. But before we get to that, what do you like about, if any, Hellraiser: <laughs> Bloodline? <laughs> well, I'll start off by saying this: it is my third favorite of the franchise. Oh, so there you go. My third. But I will say this: <laughs> I will say this. I only like two of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, actually, this, I mean, I, I think this one has a lot of merit to it. Uh, it, it just, uh, it tries. I think yeah. it's got a lot of heart. Uh, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do like this one better than part three. Uh, part three was a big letdown to me, uh, just because I think they, it's almost like they tried too hard with that one. This one at least has, I, I think, a a very interesting story to it. Yeah. It's just, I think, just between everything that happened to it through through the production of it and also with you know the director actually leaving and another guy coming in i think they put together what they could of it mm-hmm. uh i would i would have loved to have seen Stuart gordon was supposed to direct it and he turned it down i would have loved to have seen that yeah yeah <laughs> so that would have been a, a big game changer but i don't know this is the last time clive barker is involved uh it had a much bigger budget and it kept getting cut down cut down cut down so I think it was there initially. It just, you know, it, it's it's as good as it could be under the circumstances. So I, I'll give it that. 
Yeah, I, I, I would I'd come in pretty much in like 100% agreement with you there. I think um, as the rankings go, it's my third favourite. Um, I, I prefer it over three, but then three for me is essentially my fifth favourite in the franchise. Like three hmm. lies down, but I actually rate five above three as well. Um, yep. I think... I think that they do a clever thing with this movie in that I think they take lessons from the third one. So they see what they try to do in the third one. They're like that, right? We've tried the kind of almost the Elm Street scenario of Freddy's now out in the real world like they do in part two. And he's running amok and everyone's going to have to deal with it. And they tried that with Pinhead and he's just not that character. He's not that character. He's this very devious deviant character that shouldn't be in the spotlight he's one of you know hell's dominions who who works almost in the background on a smaller scale claiming souls you know one at a time as opposed to mass you know mass extinction of humanity um and it's all about games that's that i think that's the strength of like hellraiser as a story or the hellbound heart is this idea of you know, the forbidden fruit, the the, the game right. that you have to seek out to play because you've exhausted all titillation there is on the planet. This is the next step. You naturally, if you are this thrill seeker, you will eventually start experiencing darker things. And as that journey travels, you will eventually end up with a puzzle box. You know, you seek it out and it kind of seeks you out at the same time. And right. what I love about this movie is they kind of they kind of try and give it a bit of a and origins like this rooting in it came from you know france it was back in the, like the 1600s um and it was d- designed as by this great toy maker who designs it for essentially a, a satanic black magician who's wanting to bring forth a demon into this planet to essentially from what we can gather it certainly has a uh, his partner goes down that road but to use them as like a sex doll uh, <laughs> Which, yeah. yeah, which is, well, everyone has life goals, Ricky, and um, I will not be the first one to call them into question. Where I, where I think the movie kind of, I like the opening and I like the end of the movie. I really like yep. those bits because I think that they're really good bookends. Like, this is where it starts and this is how we're going to finish the overall Hellraiser story. And if this was the last one ever made, even though I prefer the fifth one, I think it makes an interesting you know, quadrology. I think that's, I think that's, yep. you know, that kind of works okay in its favour. The middle section for me is the bit that I'm kind of torn with because the middle section has yep. the vast amount of pinhead. Um, we get to see him kind of rebuild his Cenobite army, uh, assuming that he, after the end of the third movie, took a look at what he was left with and realised <laughs> that he'd been dealt a bad hand. Um, <laughs> so starts again and I think some of the Cenobites are really cool I think there is Pinhead's like like Doug Bradley is wonderfully overacting in this movie like he yeah. tries to overact in the third movie and it comes across as like slightly obnoxious but in right. this movie it's all the he constantly feels like he's got the upper hand on every scenario even right to the very end you kind of feel like like Pinhead's got like he's got an end game here that we just don't know um, so he will warn characters I love that you know oh dear oh the fear I can taste the fear over here and then when they try and like 
resist him. He's like, ah, oh, spirited. And you're like, no one can win here. You, you're you're yeah. happy when I'm cr- you're not happy when I'm crying, but then you're not happy when I'm, or you are happy when I don't know. He's he's an interesting yeah. character, and that that bit with the twins, who essentially yes. get conjoined together. There's a bit where he stands beside them and he's like, that. I know what your worst fear is. Your worst fear is, please don't take me away from my brother. And there's something. I don't have a twin, but like for some reason that really hits me. I'm like he's he's digging into their their worst fears, and he's he plays enough of it, yeah, yeah, plays yeah. it, but plays it against it. So ultimately they end up as this horribly conjoined, and the special effects makeup is fucking wicked for for the conjoined Cenobite. So I love yep. that. I just don't think that the middle part of the story is all that strong. Um, right. I, I don't think one of my big gripes about this one is I think that Bruce Ramsey isn't really great <laughs> yeah yeah he, he falls a little flat um, and, and of course he was in the movie Pin which is where I know him from Yeah, which you know in the 80s flick, flick it's kind of underrated actually it's actually really good but mm-hmm. so you know going into that high hopes I heard you know back in the day when he was going to be in it it's like alright cool that, that ought to work and yeah it just he just kind of falls flat uh, I think when when we're in 1996, the present, you know, the, what's going on in the movie, it, that whole section is a little weak, even though there's characters in there that you like. Yeah. But I think the main problem is, and you and I, I'm sure we totally agree on this, but anytime you start doing an origin story, yeah, it's time to stop because you're you're totally you're totally ripping apart what makes this character tick because yeah. you're you're going to give everybody a backstory that everybody goes, that's it. That's that's why he's. I mean, the mystery of it is what creates the character. Yeah, as soon as you start, yeah. Soon, I mean, as soon as you start doing that, you're you're killing the franchise. Yeah, there's, and they're there's trying. A, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, finish your point. Sorry. <laughs> and they're trying to make him like Freddy. Uh, it, to me, it's just obvious. They're trying to make him that person that calls you out and says these quick little quirky things and creates. You know, you you become one of his minions. And that's totally against what the first two movies was about. So I think that's that's where they were trying to take it. Where not only will he kill you, but you'll 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 end up working for him. You know. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, Pinhead is not that type of character. He's not. I think it, it speaks volumes to the the franchise and even the story originally, where like Pinhead is not supposed to be like the 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 pinnacle bad guy you know the, the 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 top dog he's essentially a minion working for for hell he's one of like right. hell's generals so to speak um but the marketing as you expect with all these movies especially horror movies from the 80s the marketing mm-hmm. gears to what can we sell we can sell this face and um, right. look at how big freddy is look how big jason is Pinhead could be like that, and how do we get him like that? Well, he needs to have these one-liners, and he needs to be every scene that he's in has to have the most dramatic music in the world playing in the background, right. um, and we, we need to make him this this wholly malevolent character, which I think plagues the series from the the third movie, certainly from the third movie on, because they're less yep. about the box and they're more about Pinhead. The box is not used as a it's not used in such a way which the first two movies kind of tried to ground it in the sense of of kind of reality. The box is ultimately used purely as a device to bring Pinhead and purely as a device to get rid of Pinhead. Right. Um, and they lose that kind of... It's, it's Like I say, it's designed as something that people that 
are thrill seekers, people that have, have exhausted all earthly pleasures seek out. And we don't get any of that, really. In, in the beginning of this movie, we get it in terms of how they try and create the origin. But we have right. so many things that th- this movie... I mean, the third movie tries to... It starts messing with the timeline as soon as we get mm-hmm. the origins of the Doug Bradley Pinhead character. So we right. now know when he becomes Pinhead, right? Because he found the box sometime after the First World War. Uh, so early 1900s. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, in this timeline, in 1996, um, Pinhead is fully aware of who Angelique is, a character who existed in hell long before him. But she kind right. of recognises him as well. Like, she's not like, who are you when the gates of hell open? She's just like, I see things have changed slightly, which I, I kind of feel like it's almost like a... We're, we're just we're going to create a slight rift in time here and not really address it um, and that kind of it frustrates me it, it really does frustrate me because we spent there was so clearly an origins of the pinhead character in part 3 that someone's right well, we can't do that anymore because that's been done so we now need to give an origins to the box which like you I would agree I quite like this ambiguity of I don't know when the box exists. I don't know how long it's been yeah. there, but it, you know it is there, um, and that's that's pretty cool. And I think that's I think when we start doing that, I think that's where very much like yourself, I'm like right. Being a fan of this, if this was a first time watch, and I wasn't really you know aware of the other three movies, that's fine. But when you're four into yeah. it, and now we're trying to retcon, uh, right. A kind of situation to find out how it arrives I think that's where you're if this was the last movie that's fine right because you can do right. that in the final movie but the fact that we then and you can see you can tell why all the other movies after this one have increasingly less pinhead um, because the, right. there's nowhere they can take that character after this movie except as a grand reveal at the end sort of yep. thing so yeah I'm, I'm with you on that one I don't like that I think some of the CGI is has not held yeah. up very well <laughs> well it's 1996 the epitome of bad CGI that's that's when you get cranking out all these movies where it's the new technology and you're like yeah but I could I can make something out of cardboard that looks better than that so yeah uh, it's, it's yeah not, so that suffers it's yeah. not great um, I think as well what dis- what? I was going to say what, what disappoints me is you know, it's supposed to be the year 2127 in space, but everything on the ship looks like 1984 because oh, God, you got, know. you know, the Terminator sitting there opening the box. I'm like, <laughs> dude, that's a Terminator. I mean, I, I, that's a straight up Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then dudes working it with with like Nintendo power gloves. I'm like, what the heck, man? What's going on here? <laughs> you know, so you got Steve-O sitting there with power gloves on working a Terminator. So it's just like, man, what the heck is going on in this movie? And again, it may be just because my eyes have changed because of the other show, but right off the gate, I was just sitting there going, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, though. I think you can tell like um, that this movie did not have a big budget. Like, yeah. you, can, you can easily tell it because it looks like a lot of the money was spent on the, the space scene at the start and at the end. And yeah. Everything. Although, in saying that, that I, I do genuinely think the makeup for all the characters 
is pretty amazing. Like, I yep. think these are some of my favourite. Like, obviously, it's almost sacrilegious to say um, that the original Cenobites are, you know, not perfect. Um, but I think um, Angelique, where she becomes a Cenobite right at the very end, where her skull is peeled apart, well, yep. the skin on the top of her head is peeled apart, and essentially stapled to her shoulders. Um, the yep. two conjoined twins. I even think the, the kind of... And they like to update the idea of the Chatterer in every single movie, which I think is pretty yeah. cool. But the Chatterer dog, I think, is, <laughs> is you know, it looks <laughs> cheap, but at the same time, it's it's cool as shit. Um, yeah. So I like that. And I think Pinhead's makeup is probably the best it's ever looked in this yep, movie. It's really think, good. Yeah. It, it, That's so, where the budget went. <laughs> exactly. It's all on point. Unfortunately, in doing that, you start to miss certain things. And... To me, this one has, I think, the highest body count. I think potentially of all the... I might be wrong about that, but I think this one has the highest body count of all the the Hellraiser movies. Um, yeah. And once again, that's not what the movie's about. You know, it's not what the franchise should be about. The franchise yeah. should explore... In the case of this one, it's trying to explore the journey of the Le Marchand family through three different timelines which is cool because we're still following that one character through these you know like one essentially one actor but one character the whole point of these movies is to follow someone's journey from getting the book and to me that's why I always got confused when they tried to pull it out and make it bigger than what it was is that you have a great working formula here the box can be opened by anyone anywhere in any movie and then the Cenobites come, and then it's a rush to the end of the movie. That's you know, that's how you do these movies. That's how you do sequels. When you make them bigger, you start to lose that. Um, so in this movie, he kills a lot of people. In the third movie, actually, I think the third movie that I said that that nightclub scene, he does kill quite a lot of people. Um, yeah. So yeah. maybe that it's, has it's, the highest. It's the beginning of him creating the other Cenobites, though. It's like, why does he have the ability to create Cenobites? If they're all demons from hell, they should just all be demons from hell. Yes. So. Why doesn't he just summon some? So I, mean, I kind of have a problem with that. And yeah. Even though some of the effects are pretty cool, I'm not a fan of CD guy at all oh, from part God. three. But <laughs> anyways, uh, I think the twins in this one is pretty cool, except for when they put them together and when they separate them because of the CGI stuff yeah. kind of hurts that. But but when they're together and like you know it's that shot that looks really cool. So yeah. Um, I think this movie just struggles from the fact of. There was absolutely holes in this movie, and they just had to bring another director in and fill it up. Yeah. This movie, I'm going to give you a list when we get to the end of this of all the movies it rips off. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long list, by the way, because even yes. watching it last, uh, so watching it this morning for this recording, um, I started going, "Well, that's very much like, oh uh, right. no, they've done this." Oh, no. Well, they get you know you get the Terminator on the box. That's obviously the Terminator. Right. While that's going on, you got a, a spaceship raid where all these you know space police come in, and it looks just like the opening of the first Star Wars, well, part four of the Star Wars movies when they're coming <laughs> on the ship. And you know, then then you get uh, something this show does that's brilliant though. I've never seen a movie do this, but if you pay attention, every bad actor has a headset microphone on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're wearing a headset mic, you can go, oh, yep, that's a bad actor. <laughs> <laughs> and then they take him into the interrogation scene, and I'm going, man, obviously they are ripping off one of the biggest and best movies of all time, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this movie is just full of, you know, 
I don't know if they're tip of the hats or they're just you know blatant ripoffs. But I think uh, it's cliches. Do you not think it's like it, 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 it falls into the trap of a lot of the scenes just feel very cliche. Like the the setup of the kind of satanic rite at the beginning of this movie feels very familiar because we've seen stuff like that before. The interrogation scene where he is basically saying to her, "Listen, we need to get out of here." Now, you don't know what's coming, I know what's coming, let's get out of here. And she's like, no, and he's like that. Well, maybe if I tell you my story, we'll let you go. Right. And then you're like, well, but two minutes ago you said we need to get out of here. Now we have time for a whole story? And this story's <laughs> going back to 1600? Well, I'm just saying that maybe this might not be, maybe we do it on the, we do it on the on trip out. Shop. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, you know that as well. Um, the fact that he doesn't seem concerned during the telling of the story until right at the very end when she's like, well, when he finishes the story and she's like, what were you doing when we came here? And he's like, that, well, releasing demons. And even at that point, he's still not that harassed by the situation. Um, Pinhead. I, I, I just. Oh, and I wanted when it when it got through all the modern time through through the old Victorian times and through the modern times, and it got back to the ship, and then the interrogator goes, "So you're telling me your backstory is Puppet Master?" Okay, it really is though. <laughs> that's the that's the thing that kind of jumps out to me as well. I don't I don't dislike the idea of it being like a toy maker who creates something. That's fine. It's a puzzle box, so you know if it's going to be created by a human, then that makes sense. But the fact that they lean so heavily into something which, you know, Phil Moon <laughs> did um, <laughs> right. and is still doing, um, that to me feels a bit weird as well. Yeah. I think like, Pinhead seems to be incredibly <laughs> sure of what's happening around him and very clued up with things. Um, and then all of a sudden, fairly clueless. If... Like when, he, when the fact that he doesn't know that one, the guy in front of him is a hologram, right? Right. <laughs> right. But, like, but like yeah. so maybe movie logic says, well, you know, this is 200 years in the future. Well, right, I can kind of see that, but every time Pinhead is called, he seems to be very much aware of what's happening around him. And that would make sense. Like, hell exists not stuck in one time. It exists constantly so that feels a bit weird the fact you could sense the fears of the twins but can't sense anything from the the hologram to me is a warning flag but doesn't seem to bother them um you know there's there's weird little blips in the storytelling here which only oh, yeah. come up because you're trying to explain too much at the beginning you're exactly right yeah I, I think that's the when i strip out all those things that i think are dumb, or when I strip out things that I'm like that, you're just creating plot holes, you know, big enough to swallow your movie. For the most part, yeah. I think it's quite an interesting movie. I think if you're going to set mm -hmm. something in space, I quite like the fact that that's just the bookend of the movie. You know, the beginning and right. end. We're not spending too right. much time in space. I, I do quite like the the reveal of the Angelique character. Um, yes, I think she. I think she's brilliant in this movie, and uh, uh, Valencia Vargas. Kind of, she has a look about her, which at times does look quite innocent. But when she moves her eyes, she does look fairly deviant and malicious. Um, yep. I think Doug Bradley tones it a little bit back from his "I'm Jesus crucified in a church" in part three. Right. He does kind yeah. of bring it back to well, what makes this character terrifying? Well, what makes him terrifying is the fact that he knows what you fear. 
he he will tempt you to do things and if you you know it gets off on suffering although i think this movie mentions flesh far too much as a word you know there's there's nothing but flesh acres of flesh and they they really focus on that a lot and i don't know if it's because they like the way he says the word flesh um (laughs) or if just say it again just say it again so so, like can i just change this line here now i know you see like feed on your soul and whilst we love the word soul can we change that to can we get another word you know another word for doug yeah we've not used flesh and you say flesh doug and i imagine his eyes roll out okay flesh and you're like that's the one that's, that's the, one. the word yeah that's it they come down between that and vacuum so yeah. <laughs> it's like constantly the use of this one and i understand you know this is like humans are made of flesh and that's what the game is for and, and all the rest i my one of my biggest gripes with the the hellraiser thing in general which on some level is kind of rectified slightly in this movie is that great line that they always do and I'm not the first one to say this I think any intelligent podcaster that's ever covered Hellraiser always acknowledges that line in the first movie uh, demons to some angels to other and Absolutely. this idea of people like almost worshipping the at, yep. you know, at the church of the Cenobites um, and I love the, the fact that Adam Scott's character and the you know the, the actual uh, black magician um, at the beginning find a way to you know all, almost worship but pervert that worship of hell by trapping essentially right. what we would like to believe is like a princess of the, the the hell realm and then ultimately they're used as a, like a toy um, I think there's a great scene with his character who is completely reprehensible and it's the first time I think I've ever cheered a Cenobite on, or like one of the Hell characters to eviscerate someone quickly, um, and he dies a pretty horrible death. Actually, she really revels in that. But yeah. like his character is just the most reprehensible yeah. little bastard ever, and the fact that he manages to live like about two hundred years, and he's still saying to her, "You know, you know what I want. You know not to answer back to me, and you'll do what I say." Um, I, th- I feel that's quite ham-fisted in the, you know, never stand in the in the road of hell, never stand in hell's path, because um, that, you know, that's where you, you put yourself in danger, which is mentioned in this movie about 15 minutes before this guy puts, you know, we jump at, we jump 200 years and there is no, you don't feel like there's been a passage of time, so that well, bit he, where he breaks it yeah, that's gonna feels say rushed. It's- it acts like you know why was his why was his character kind of immortal because he wasn't aging or anything and just because he had her he was living all the way up to nineteen ninety six I that always threw me too it was like it's not why is he still around yeah it's not yeah. explained and I don't understand why it's not explained to me it feels like that's something that's easily explained like they could say that you know um, he, it's just a throwaway line you know like. Uh, in, in the 200 years, whatever, like that, but there's no indication that she's kept her, you know, by her being yeah. on the planet, you know, it, it's those sort of things, it's the things that you mentioned before, when you start giving backstory, you inherently start to raise questions, because how does this fit in, how does it yeah. work within the canon of what we know, um, and that's not to say that the movie disregards all of that, It in revealing where the box comes from, I think you can do that, okay yes 
You know what I mean? But when you yep. then try and flesh that part of the story out, that whole beginning bit should be nothing more than a five-minute montage scene of the box was created by an ancient, you know, relative of mine who was a toy maker who was uh, was used <laughs> by a black magician. Five-minute montage scene where someone talks over it and then move us. Yeah, but if you if you do that though, you lose the best scene in the whole movie, which is where he finally finishes the box and he shows it to his wife and oh, he hits a button. She come, it opens up and she goes. Is that it? It's like yeah. 16th century, like or like 17th century France. Like, see if it a box really do much. Does yeah, it? if a box, if a wooden box moves after you press a button, that's tantamount to witchcraft. Burned at the stake. You know what I mean? Is she, fun- was, <laughs> she was just like, well, it should. It doesn't do a lot, does it? He's like, it's my masterpiece, slut. Yeah, he does. He gets so angry. He gets so angry that even the promise of sex will not not keep him in the house he's like well no fuck you I'm going to take it to the house where people are going to be impressed by it you know what I mean it's, it's very 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 funny that because you can see he's like so happy and over the moon and she is just like is that it that's oh. that's cute um, yeah that's cute yeah so yeah so I, I would agree on that I actually think we're agreeing with a lot more than I thought we would oh yeah I think we I think we are I think um Bottom line, folks, is if, if a demon chick wants to go to America, just go. Yeah. Well, if <laughs> I, yeah. Why would you want to keep staying in? Like, why would you want to keep staying in Paris? Go to New York City. It's the Big Apple. That's all I'm saying. So so bad. Plus, I would love yeah. this scene of them both on the plane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like she's like, uh, you know, Angelique would like, uh, you know, the, the woman's walking past. Does anyone want some warm nuts? Does someone? Can I get you a miniature from the bar? And she's like. Angelique would like a vodka and he's like that no she's not having the vodka she's a mean drunk are you standing in front of the path of hell no, right, no give her a vodka her- <laughs> the, the wee or she just tr- say you know I need some flesh well let me see what I can you know scrounge up back in the room yeah so <laughs> yeah I don't know will will, will air flight food be enough no flesh uh, well I kind of think it is flesh we don't know what it is um, but yeah and there's there are if this was the final movie, and you can see why Cl- Clyde Barker doesn't want anything inv- any involvement after this one, because it's written in such a way that that's it done. You know what I mean? Yep. This this movie yep. is finished at the end of this one. Pinhead is destroyed, um, and we have a movie essentially which is the fourth instalment of a linking story that goes through, closes out this, and that's it done. Is it the best way to finish off the franchise? If we were if we were having this as the final part probably not but at least they make that bold step in all the previous movies Pinhead is cast back to be resurrected and this one they make that bold step of no we're killing the character off which is the first time they've done that um, right so really they, they do kind of put the, the the full stop or the end game uh, which this movie really should have been called as opposed to Bloodline because sure there's you know they mentioned I think Bloodline is mentioned once in here but we have the words Endgame used about four or five times and that's great for a trailer you know what I mean you know we were playing I, to the Endgame Hellraiser I thought Endgame. they they should have just called it Pinhead the the, the child abductor uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the other thing you know what I mean he's like and they kind of make the, they make him so like human in this movie right. at times like that he's not needed to do this before he just tortures right. people until he gets what he wants but in this one he's in uh, someone's house I mean, with their kid 
most of the time he just jerks his eyes and chains come out and it goes through people. And in this one, he goes to your house and actually kidnaps your kid. Yeah, and it looks like, <laughs> it looks like if you see upstairs, it looks like there's a struggle. So I just get this, like, I love this image of Pinhead showing up and the wee kid, like, running around the room and I'm, come here, you little shit. <laughs> come here. <laughs> That's it. I am a prince of hell. You will listen to me. He's like, he's like don't you stick your tongue out at me. Right. I am Pinhead. Um... You know, like chasing this little kid for him. Um, right, let's let's um, let's bring it in then. Let's bring it in because I think okay, I think we're both kind of on the same the same level here with this one. Um, if you were to grade this one using the Netflix grades, which one hated it, two didn't like it, three liked it, four really liked it, five loved it, knowing that this is your third favorite, but also with the caveat that you only really like two of the movies. Um, <laughs> what do you score Hellraiser Bloodline? I'd give it a three, man. I, I mean, I like it. Is it one now? Keep you know, want to keep revisiting? Probably not. But again, I think I think the story is interesting enough that you know, again, the the story is good. Yeah. It's just not executed very well, and that's and that's because of all the the, the budget issues and everything else they had going on. So, I, you know, I, I think it's a a good attempt. It just falls a little flat. I'm with you 100%. It's a three for me. I like it. Um, I yep. think it's one that I can come back and watch. It's one of those ones that you can shove on in the background. Um, you don't have to pay too much attention to it. You get quite a bit of Pinhead in this one, and Pinhead's not being too goofy um, in this movie, which is kind of which is watchable. I think some of the special effects are really good. I think the CGI is cringeworthy. But, um, yes. Yeah, out with that, it, it, it's a satisfying enough movie to watch. Does it reach the dizzying highs of parts one and two? No, but I don't think the franchise was ever going... I think when they finished off that second part, that was really where it should have been left and left forever right. more there. But, you know, the, if you're going to continue on, this one at least attempts to save face from the, the shit show that three turned out to be towards the end. So, yeah, I think a three seems reasonable. Um, right, this is a part of your... Uh, Russian roulette-esque franchise retrospective appearance where you get to promote the shit out of your shows uh, and they are two fantastic shows that I advocate that everyone goes out and checks but Ricky where can they check out your two shows and what are they called? Alright well first I'm going to give you this quick rundown so oh, yes. if you okay. want a hell if you, <laughs> if you want a Hellraiser movie with these elements in it this is your movie if you want a little Star Wars rip off in it this is it Terminator Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, just because I think that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Puppet Master, Dracula, because the guy that has the house that's, you know, bringing the... I mean, it's it's a direct Dracula ripoff. There's yeah. no denying it. Yeah. Uh, skinning the woman, and you just, just get the silhouette of it. That's straight out of Black Cat. Uh, you get some Frankenstein in there. You got Ghostbusters, because of the Cenobite chatter dogs. Remind me of the dogs that are on Ghostbusters. Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3. You get a little <laughs> bit of all three of those in this movie. There are elements from all three of those movies in this movie. Wait one second, our main character has a shaved head. <gasps> there you go, Alien 3. <laughs> <laughs> but the biggest one, which is the most obvious one to me, was uh, they build this spaceship that folds up when Pinhead's in it to shape it's supposed to look like the box which is straight out of star trek next generation it's a borg station basically yeah, it's, it's a borg cube yeah yeah so there you go that's the rundown of that okay right let's do the shows that i'm on uh helming power hour 
Uh, been around for yeah, a year and a half now. Uh, it's a fun show. We just kind of do whatever we feel like. It's mainly 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, a lot of fun. Legion Podcast, iTunes, or, or Apple Podcast, as they call it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Google Play, Stitcher, all your outlets are on Instagram, Twitter. And I'm just going to repeat all the same stuff for Short Bus Cinema, which is the newest show. Uh, me and Johnny Krug. Uh, I forget to mention Danny Bennett's my partner on the other show, and uh, he's just as nutty as I am. So uh, we have a good time. Uh, Duncan's come on the show several times, and it's always great. Matter of fact, we've got another another uh, episode 50s around the corner, so you better be thinking about what you want to do, dude. Yeah, I will drop you a line. I've got a couple in mind, and I think all of them are awesome. So. Cool. And then uh, Short Bus Cinema is new. Uh, totally driven by the listeners trying to find the holy grail of bad movies. And we're also a proud member of Legion. And you can find us at all the same outlets that uh, that I said earlier. Uh, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Um, yeah, check us out. Also, Instagram, Twitter, uh, both on Facebook pages. A lot of lot of stuff going on there so check that out and get involved and that that's what makes it fun is just getting people involved and making them feel like they're a part of both shows and i know it's the same way with podcasts on the stairs because i i throw a lot of stuff on their page too so <laughs> so yeah right just idea. just fun stuff yeah fun stuff thank you very much uh, ricky for coming on and tackling this one i know that you will be sitting back and enjoying with glee as some of our other fellow podcasters get less <laughs> um, and the way of quality from these movies coming up. <laughs> so, so you know, for you guys out there, uh, Duncan's kind of the main reasons I got into podcasting. And so, anytime I get a chance to come back on the show, I'm all excited because I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we'll get into some more Fulci stuff because we both are big Italian freaks. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, may- maybe some more Sovi stuff, and I get Hellraiser four. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is cool <laughs> when you look at Hellraiser. That that's okay. <laughs> well, so I'm just gonna say that when we this is this is how I tease things. Although this information will be public by the time this show goes out, but uh, yeah, we're gonna have a conversation when I hit stop here, um, which is gonna make you very happy. So awesome. uh, right, right. Um, thank you very much, Ricky. We are gonna take a break. You're gonna hear the trailer for our next movie review. This is Hellraiser Inferno. Me and my to be announced guest. We'll be coming up to do that movie right after this. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. <laughs> Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in Wool Rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud too? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hell Ming 
Impala Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Hail Ming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. All hell is about to break loose again. And this time, a battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome to hell. Hellraiser Inferno. No! Welcome back. So it's time to tackle the second movie review of the second Russian Roulette retrospective. Looking at the Hellraiser franchise, this is the fifth installment. Oh dear God, this is Hellraiser 5, a.k.a. Hellraiser Inferno. You heard the selection music at the start. You know who my guest is. This man is making his podcast Under the Stairs debut. Now, I feel a bit ashamed about this. I said to him just before we hit record, I would have put down money that he'd already been on the show. I feel like I've been chatting to this guy for years already. So I kind of feel a bit ashamed that this is the way I'm introducing him on a retrospective where I chose a movie from a hat where he had no say in it and he got landed with the fifth instalment, which some people would say is a terrible movie. I will see what he thinks of it. He is the host of a fairly new podcast, although he's been he's been reviewing, he's been podcasting for, for many, many years now. His podcast has a slight twist on it, though. He looks at movies with a political tone, or through the magnifying glass of politics. I've guested on the show twice already. I love it so much. The host of the Psycho-Semantic cast, Darren Wilson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty great, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on here and letting me be in the uh, the roulette. I knew it would be a good way to get on. There weren't a lot, <laughs> yeah. lot of people. There weren't a lot of people stepping up. I was like, "Fuck it! I vote. I voted for it. I got to put my name or put my neck on the line." I, I love the fact that you know I'm I'm like that. Darren's been on the show before. You're like, I've never been on the show. He's not asked me, so I will throw myself in harm's way, potentially getting 
one of the really shitty Hellraisers here as an opportunity to be on Teapots. You mad, mad man. <laughs> I take my chances when I can get them, sir. <laughs> so like I said, um, you recently, I want to say in the last, it's been about four months, is it? Four or five months? Yeah, uh, the uh, this show, the Psycho Semantic Cast, that, the first, ep- this first episode was lined up with uh, two days before inauguration, uh, presidential oh. inauguration day here. Uh, so since about January 15th. So about Fucking six months. Hell. Yeah. Six months already. Dear God. Um, yeah. So you've, you've been, but you, like I said before, you have been reviewing and I believe podcasting before that as well. So this isn't like your first time to the barbecue or anything like that. No, no, no. I had one, I had a podcast that nobody listened to. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah a while back and uh, i just kind of got uh i was on uh cinema psyops another one of your uh uh legion legion shows uh back in october and court was kind of like hey you know maybe you should start doing that again and then we saw everything that was going on and uh, I knew I was going to be obsessing over politics and watching movies to get away from it. So I figured, well, that's a show. <laughs> it's a really good show as well. I love the, I'm a big fan of, there's, um, I mean, since, uh, and Teapots hasn't been on the go all that long in the grand scheme of things, but I've noticed that the influx of very samey sounding shows that have come out, especially in the time that I've been doing it, is is incredible. The the format that we do is nothing kind of reinventing the wheel. Um, it's why I try and do so much diversity on it in terms of the content. Is to, you know, the format is ve- at its bare bones is is one that is done by most podcasts. But with the spin of what I do in the show, kind of keeps it feeling fresh from my perspective and hopefully hopefully from the listener's point of view. But what I really love is shows that tackle things from a view or a position or at the same time through a particular lens and that was the bit when you said you were coming back and the psychosemantic cast was going to be the show that looked at any movie as long as you could justify a political message or position from it that made me really excited because it's something i think today in today's climate everyone seems to be whether or not they actually are more politically minded. We have a lot of armchair activism and a lot of people taking a bit more interest in what government is doing for for better or worse Um, and as such that conversation is a bit more mainstream than it's been for, for many years now and to have the opportunity to take those conversations that you're having and then look at movies that you're watching and see if you know, a director or a storyteller is putting forward a political stance. Or if you can read into that, I think it's a wholly fascinating way to do things. And what I love about your show as well is because it's looked through that that lens, you're not specifically stuck in one genre. You could be covering all the genres from, you know, kind of satire and comedy right through to the really dark, hard-hitting dramas, thrillers and horror movies as well. It's a, it's a great concept. I, I am envious that you thought of it first. <laughs> thanks thanks a lot, dude. Well, you know, I've, I've said the times that you were on, but you definitely can come back as often as you like and uh, enjoy that playground. 
Oh god, it's a it's a fertile one, and I'll never come back as long as my um, my libertarian anarchist <laughs> buddy um, Smoke from the Midnight Horror Show joins me. It's, it's, I, I believe we are um, we are each other's yin to each other's yang, if you know what I mean. Um, like one person's shoulder devil and the other person's shoulder angel, very much like a cenobite. Angels to some and demons to others. See how I linked that. Oh my! Nice. I'm a professional up in this bitch. (laughs) Um, So, because it's your first time on the show, I have a a long-standing history of asking guests the first time they appear on the show what their history is with horror movies. What What's your What's your interest in horror movies, and what's your subgenre? What What do you gravitate towards, and what are you not keen on? Well, uh, you might be surprised, but I like a lot of political horror. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if I had to pick a subgenre, you know, the stuff like uh, Body Snatchers or um, more, more recently, something like Get Out. Yeah. Something something where there's it's pretty obvious what they're talking about. Uh, I mean, I could probably go, the the thing they live those types of movies i love slashers and stuff like that too i usually put those on when i want to kind of shut my brain off a little bit and uh uh you said stuff i don't really like uh i'm really uh selective when it comes to found footage i'm, I'm not necessarily, oh, right. not necessarily a big fan of it but i have uh come to love a lot more of it than i ever thought i would from uh your recommendations actually ah that's quite interesting i, I mean I, I have a long-standing history of a kind of love load relationship with found footage i still think it's a really interesting genre when used correctly but i think a lot of people just use it to save money which to me cynically speaking is not the best way to present that footage i mean it's, it's a practical way for sure but it, it leads down many avenues of lazy filmmaking, which I cannot be bothered with at all. I think um, some of the best time footage ones are the ones that feel genuine and authentic, which is what that genre should play into. Have you ever seen The Conspiracy? No. Then your next appearance on the podcast, Under the Stairs, will be doing a little look at The Conspiracy. You're going to dig that found footage movie a whole hell of a lot. It kind of covers the... A Bohemian Grove sort of conspiracy, but done found footage style. Right on, man. So, I uh, I just wrote that down. I'm gonna find that. Yeah. So uh, we, get off so we will do that. I'll link it. I'll link it up with something else. But we'll get you on the show to do that. And the fact that you've never seen it before makes me excited because it's one of those found footage movies I like a whole hell of a lot. I think it's it's one that went right under the radar. Like people just missed that one out. Uh, so it's only it's about three, four years old, I think. So yeah, we'll get you back on okay. to do that. But okay. in the interim, uh, you you foolishly put your name in <laughs> to this uh, Russian roulette, <laughs> and um, yeah, he who dares wins. And um, in my opinion, you won here. Um, I, I have said many times that I get a, a, a kind of collective slagging off for this one but I actually really like this movie I think that I'm watching it back for the show first time in a couple of years um, realised I still really like this movie this is the fifth movie in the Hellraiser franchise Hellraiser Inferno from the year 2000 is directed by as I've already described them on the previous Hellraiser show as Future Disappointment Scott Derrickson now <laughs> I, I call him Future Disappointment because 
The man started off with so much promise. I mean, he did Hellraiser Inferno, he did the Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is a movie I, I like quite a bit. He stamped oh, yeah. his name on Sinister, which I thought was a great movie. Um, not not so much the sequel, but the original I thought was a whole hell of a lot of fun. He did Deliver Us From Evil, which is a hot mess of a movie. Didn't know what it wanted to be. Didn't know how to do what it wanted to be. There is issues with accents in that movie, and someone needs to sort that out. And then he did last year's Doctor Strange, which I'm not a big comic book fan anyway. That movie is almost unwatchable. It is just a CGI mess. Um, and he's behind that. So he, he seems to be failing upwards, which <laughs> is a bit worrying. Um, but back in the day, he was, he was kind of doing more concise smaller pieces and this was one of them now we should probably get this out of the way Dern, at the beginning okay. uh, you may or may not know this but Hellraiser Inferno originally wasn't supposed to be a Hellraiser movie did you know this? I did I thought that uh, uh, part 4 was it part 4 or part 3 that also wasn't supposed to be it's part 5 and part 6 believe it or not oh, it's part f- I, I knew there were two together and one of them was this one yeah, so, uh, but so that's the extent part, of my knowledge of that. Yeah, part five originally was a kind of neo noir script about um, a detective who was who who was kind of obsessed with puzzles to an extent, but gets embroiled in this kind of puzzle mystery. And the script is owned by Dimension at the time, and Dimension decided to kind of just bring in some some pinhead why not let's let's get some pinhead in this movie let's make it a hellraiser movie and a lot of it was designed after the fact to make it feel that way um scott derrickson directed it the the actual writing people behind it well clive barker was responsible for the characters this is the first one where they actually took his name pretty much out everything um, this is the, uh, the previous movie was the last one he was kind of really involved with even from a, a kind of producer's point of view but the story itself was um, was adapted by Scott Derrickson from the original one by Paul Harris Boardman um, the cast of this movie uh, Craig Sheffer who it's always great to see him I love Nightbreed Nightbreed is legitimately yeah. one of my favourite movies ever or as yeah. the kids like to say Evs Tote Evs and Mush um, I, that's just a lot of weird words um, but yeah, yeah I love him and to see him in here is, is a whole hell of a lot of fun but we've got Nicholas Tuturo, James Remar who I also love uh, Doug Bradley Nicholas Sadler Noel Evans Lindsay Taylor Matt George Michael Seamus Wills Sasha Brezzi Catherine Jutson Jessica Elliott other folks in this movie synopsis on IMDb quite like this one it says a shady <laughs> which is an <laughs> understatement police detective becomes embroiled in a strange world of murder sadism and madness after being assigned a murder investigation against a madman known only as the engineer um, yeah this one came out in 2000 now court has said to me that 2 was really interesting for him because it expanded out the idea of what the Cenobites do. It, it, it looks at basically all these personal hells that people get trapped into and it kind of expands on that thing and we loved that concept which is dropped by the time you reach the third film and certainly by the time you reach the fourth film 
I think, which brings us to how we do these reviews, one of the strengths of Infernal, um, above all others, is it brings back this idea of this is your personal hell. If hell is a place where, like the Greeks thought, um, you would have to go through a series of trials which were basically being stuck in an affinity loop of being forced to do the same thing over and over and over again, whether it was push a giant boulder up the top mm. of the hill or see a loved one die over and over again. That was their perception of what hell is, is this idea of being stuck in the, the worst thing you can imagine and being forced to relive it. Hellraiser Inferno is that concept. It's it's not done perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but the torments and hell that you know um, Detective Thorne, played by Craig Sheffer, is put through. By the end of this movie, we understand that this is his hell. He will loop in this hell for all time, and this is the first movie out with Hellraiser Two that actually kind of circles back to that concept. Um, so I think that's I actually think it's a, it's a wonderful thing that they do here now like I say uh, what we want to do is we want to focus on the good things first and then by god we will focus on the bad things of which there's a laundry <laughs> list of those um, tell me my friend Dern some of the good things that you actually think Hellraiser Inferno captures well, uh, like you said, I was really glad to have the the torture, the BDSM uh, references and fixation mm-hmm. that, you know, you usually find in Barker stuff and especially in Hellraiser. You know, there was a lot of stuff in the background. And I even sort of thought that uh, I was trying to keep track uh, the last time I watched it, if all of the victims were killed in uh, sort of uh, bondage experience or... Uh, bondage play type stuff like the first girl i sort of uh thought that it was kind of a nod to autoerotic asphyxiation mm-hmm. uh because she was hung and she was in her underwear and then uh yeah the guy chained to the chair with his arms over beat to death with those uh i guess it was more popularized in that passion of the christ movie but you know that cat of nine tails <laughs> with the with the hooks yeah and you know there's pat- <laughs> There's paddles Because a, 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 a cat of nine tails isn't sadistic enough. Let's attach hooks to the end. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was one of the things that I really like about the Hellraiser franchise is the pain and pleasure. And I feel like that's really... They, they go back to... Uh, to the Not the beginning, but, you know, they go back to the roots a little bit in this mm. movie. And I'm glad you said that it was based off a noir script because i mean that's I, that was really coming out in these viewings i hadn't watched this in years but you know he's like i live in a world of facts sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you know I, i'm expecting it to go black and white while he's driving around in the car like double indemnity or something like that um yeah so yeah i i like that they come back to that there's a lot of uh foreshadowing in this movie that I think they do really well like the mm-hmm. the repeated and that adds into the Sisyphusian hell loop that uh, Thorn is stuck in and uh, you know the the first time through when it was relatively new to me I didn't notice as much as uh, when I watched it last night um, 
I like the Kung Fu Cowboy Cenobites. doesn't love that what i love about that like like see when you're, when you're talking about that it's it's small things that i think people think are one step too far that and in any other movie i would agree like a hundred percent that these people are right but there's i don't know if it's because part three has awful cenobite minions and part four has kind of passable cenobite minions that by the time we get to five and we're getting Cenobite minions which aren't being created during the movie, there's a sigh of relief that comes over me with that. I hate the concept, I've always hated the concept of, oh well, while the movie's going on, Pinhead will, like, he'll either use the object nearest you to make you a Cenobite that dispenses either CDs or a camera <laughs> from its eye, or, or the in the in the fourth one the although I think it's a great introduction uh, as Cenobite characters the the twin brothers that get kind of melded together or or, or almost kind of flesh welded together um, because they can't like Pinhead realizes their fear is that they don't want to be apart so he plays on that. I, I always found that as like a step too far. There had been nothing in those first two movies to say that's how Cenobites were made. So I kind of mm-hmm. felt like it was jumping the shark. And one of the great things about this movie is you don't have to worry about that at all. We have these kind of Cenobite twin, very overly sexual women who have their eyes removed and these wires that go from their, their collarbones up into their chin who can, when they touch you, apparently put their hands under your skin. Um, and we have another incarnation of the Chatterer, which makes me smile so much. And the Chatterer is like one of my favourite underappreciated characters in Hellraiser and he has been like changed and incarnated about three or four different times during the series. And this one is just basically is kind of like a torso with two arms that drags itself along, still doing the, the kind of the, the teeth gnashing noise. Yeah. But I, I love that idea. So when we get to the extent of these kind of cowboy Cenobite disciple ninjas that appear to give Detective Thorne a, a right good kick in, as they would say in my country, um, <laughs> for his investigations and because he's poking his nose in too much, that never was too much for me. You know, that, mm-hmm. that never was them pushing it one step too far because I felt like I have seen a Cenobite which dispenses CDs from its head. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's If that's the extreme, this is nowhere near the extreme. Um, and I like the way that that's set up as well. He, he travels to very much like any good noir crime thriller. Um, our characters end up travelling to places that they're unfamiliar with and it's it's filled with all manner of kind of seedy sort of, you know, groups or gangs or whatever. And the fact that Thorne ends up at this western-themed bar where everyone's dressed like a cowboy on the skirts of LA <laughs> um, and that kind of spills out into this, you know, this attack by these, these kind of these disciples never bothered me at all. I, I, I know it to some people is 
the bit where the movie starts to lose credibility and like I say I can kind of see it but in the grand scheme of things if you if you can allow yourself to roll with it it's just one scene in a movie I mean the rest of the movie I think holds up really well the the use of practical effects in the movie is something I kind of love um, mm-hmm. and they really push it not like wholly right through but there are some great makeup effects when he visits the the old folks home to go and see his, uh, his estranged parents there is a scene where someone is pushed past in a straight jacket and their face is mm. kind of pulled with these chains and his face is distorted almost like uh, Jack Nicholson's The Joker with this kind of his face is the, the the muscles and the skin are pulled far far back and those small effects the effects of people like the, the, the kind of gnarly way that the cadavers are displayed after they've been hooked and destroyed. I mean, the first proper body we see in this movie is one that has been flayed of all its flesh and is left as like a steaming kind of collection of muscle and bone. Very, very similar to how we see um, the the father in the very first movie after Frank has removed his brother's skin. It's, it's kind of like that, and I, I kind of love that. And there's a lot of the practical effects in here they work really well. I, I, I think that side of thing is handled pretty great. And like we were saying, that the noir aspect of things, I think it works really well. Um, Craig Schaefer's narration as he further explores the mystery is pretty cool. I think the limited use of the Cenobites are there enough to to continue thinking, has, you know, are the Cenobites fucking with them? Or is he in the box? Um, the introduction later on of James Remar as Dr. Gregory, I think is great. I love James Remar and seeing him as this kind of police psychologist slash priest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is great. And then ultimately revealed as the, the mastermind. He is the engineer or pinhead. Uh, but there's a story that he talks about earlier on in the movie, which becomes apropos to exactly what happens in this movie about a detective who becomes so obsessed with the engineer that he starts to disobey the law, you know, break the rules and ultimately becomes so obsessed by it that he puts his gun in his mouth and blows his brains, uh, which is essentially what Craig Sheffer does. And there's almost this idea kind of tingling at the back of this movie that Dr. Gregory is actually telling the story of Detective Thorne because this isn't actually his first time through it. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think is a really cool concept about how many times has Schaefer went through exactly the same scenario. Um, Which I think opens the movie up to to a whole lot more. Um, Other things you like about it, Dan? What else do you like about this movie? Well, yeah, I... I like that some of the things that seem a bit too ridiculous, like the Western cowboy bar and things like that, that once you get to the end and find out that it is hell Mm -hmm. and it is his torture, that forgives so many things that I uh, initially might have had umbrage with. You know, it it would be a ridiculous cowboy bar like that in in, uh, Thorne's hell. You know, uh, and it's kind of interesting that his 
I don't know if it was on purpose or not, and this might be part of a thing I didn't like. I didn't think the character of his wife was too strong, and I don't think she was acting that well, but since that was one of the parts of his life that he enjoyed, then I talked myself into thinking, oh, they stripped away part of her, so he doesn't even get that little bit of enjoyment. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm thinking too much into this. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I think I think you're. I, I think that's. It depends how you look at the movie. I think my, my observation of the movie, having watched it many times, is from the moment we start this movie, he's trapped in the box. Um, now, some people could argue that we get scenes before he quote unquote opens the box, which that might be that may be fine. But from the point he opens that box. We are in this dreamlike state that we don't know how many times he's played this through. And because we don't meet his wife proper until after he's opened the box, you can question what her motives are, what she's like as a character, her importance, her involvement, the way that she's written. You can question it from that point because from the point that he wakes up on the bathroom floor for the first time, we can say that's the first time, but we don't know it's the first time. Um, and I think when you look at the movie through that lens, and it might be a cop-out and some people might just say that I'm trying to retcon <laughs> things to, to forgive mistakes. And that's a, I mean, that's a fair, enough, it's a fair enough accusation. But I think that when you look at it through that lens, a lot more of the movie kind of makes sense, starts to fit a lot of the over-the-top nature about certain scenes doesn't become so over-the-top when you look at it through that prism of, well, he's already in the box and this is his living hell. So um, at that point, you can maybe forgive, try and forgive, possibly forgive um, <laughs> some of the things that's happening um, in the movie. I think I think that's a fair thing to say. I don't think that's in the grand context of... Uh, of kind of Hellraiser plots, I don't think that's pushing the envelope too far. Now, I even, just in case I was giving it too too much of a pass, I watched uh, the first one again in between viewings of this, just for for the uh, the scientific comparison or whatever. And I still liked all the things I liked about this movie. Um, mm -hmm. I I think this was kind of like in your roulette... This was like the uh, $20,000 in between the bankruptcy uh, bankruptcy, <laughs> bankruptcy squares and Wheel of Fortune because it, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, 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 like, I, I think I posted on the page when I watched this one a couple of days ago that this is legitimately the last one I care about. Um, and it's one of the reasons for the last two years... Uh, of doing the Basby Horror franchise stuff that I've said to him, like, we're doing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, but the third movie in that franchise, I can't give a fuck. And I keep saying to him, you could have had five Hellraiser movies, which are varying different degrees of good, but there's still a whole hell of a lot you can hang your hat on in all of those movies, and maybe less so in three, but for, for four and five, there's a lot you can hang your hat on. Um, and then after that, it, it kind of fizzles away. Uh, but you, you can't say that with a lot of the franchises that we had looked at. 
And I, I legitimately mean that. I, I saw Hellraiser Inferno when it came out on VHS. I worked in a video store. Um, the, the year it came out, rented it. Had already seen the first couple um, of Hellraiser movies. So I kind of knew some of the story, but wasn't like au fait with, with the entire kind of mythology behind the characters and stuff. And instantly felt myself gravitating to this idea of the the one and done sort of story, which, to be honest with me, is the way that personally, even though I think the second movie is the best at the lot, is how you do Hellraiser. Hellraiser is the perfect setup. It's almost like, on some level, very much like something like Creepshow. Creepshow is an amalgamation of stories joined together and uh, uh, under the the guise of an anthology within a comic book. Um, that way you can take it in any direction Hello? whenever you want. Okay. Hellraiser is exactly the same. Hellraiser is, you know, the box is your your anchor point. The box can be any place at any time. It can be in the past. It can be in the future. It can be in the present. And all you have to have is a story of a character who comes across the box. Uh, and opens a box and then experiences the results, whatever they may be, with whoever the Cenomites might be. They don't necessarily have to be Pinhead and his acolytes. They can be anyone. And you you have the potential for a very long-running series. It's almost like what they tried to do with Halloween 3, with with this idea of with Season of the Witch. They were like, well, we're just going to set a... a series of stories from now on set on Halloween in or around Haddonfield and that's, you know, the only thing that will link them is they're set on Halloween but they can go in any direction and deal with anything but there'll be these bespoke one-off horror movies. To me Hellraiser had the easier way of doing that because all you needed was the box and they didn't do that. The first four movies are essentially continuations of the same story. So this first one, jumping out the gates, trying to establish its its own place, its own importance, I think it, it does so much more right than it does wrong. I think that's overlooked. Um, we've kind of touched on things that, that might not be great about this movie. Um, <laughs> do, do, do you have things that 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 make uh, you wince a little bit, make you cringe, uh, arc you in some capacity? You know, they're... I'm trying to think. Uh, the only thing I had really written down and then that I sort of explained it away with my, well, this is his hell loop. But I kind of thought that his partner was a little, uh, at, at least at the very beginning, a little uh, dim to be a detective. <laughs> I, that That part was a bit much. You know, he should have. I don't know how he missed the pen, the planted pen sitting right there on the table. I, mm-hmm. I you know, it's, he didn't notice that his cigarettes were gone. Uh, I mean, it's been a while since I've smoked cigarettes, but I knew where they were at all times. So, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I guess I there was part of me that didn't like that there that the uh, pinhead and the Cenobites were sort of added in mm-hmm. relatively after the fact. I could have dealt with more of them, but I really like what they did. They did a lot more good than they did bad, and uh, I like that there was all the 
references to time stopping and starting, especially at the beginning with the speed chess match. And, um, yeah, uh, you, uh, you mentioned the box, uh, that, that makes just about any Hellraiser movie, a Hellraiser movie for me too. And I guess I, I just wanted to say that I heard that the, the guy that created that passed on today. He did. I, I, it was um, at the date of this recording, which um, for anyone that is interest, interested, we recorded this Tuesday, the twentieth of June. Um, the news had came out that the original creator of the uh, Lament configuration has passed on, which was a bit of a shock. Um, there always seems to be—I don't know what it is. Whenever the podcast under the stairs starts doing any sort of franchise retrospective, things happen. <laughs> in relation to a franchise where there is the announce that a new movie is being made or someone famous from the, the cast. I believe that when we did the Friday the 13th movies, um, uh, Betsy Palmer passed away um, when we were doing the Nightmare uh, franchise. I think that's when they announced the first kind of push for a new movie, which has never happened. When we looked at, you know, obviously we're doing Texas Chainsaw just now, but in the time of doing that, there was an official release date for the new movie. Um, when we were doing Evil Dead stuff, I think there was more Evil Dead news came out, so it always seems to happen. So it does not surprise me that something, although albeit quite sad news, um, you know, when we're covering this, these things come out. I think the the one thing that kind of gripes me, and it, it's something that I picked up as time has went on, uh, unfortunately, is that obviously Scott Derrickson is out and out Catholic, very, very much, um, you know, a very proud Catholic filmmaker or Christian filmmaker, that's what I should say. Um, and he got a bit of a chance to do some work on the script and it tells the, the the idea of of hell as a concept and sin as a concept is is very much hammered home in this movie it's incredibly hammered home in this movie and there is a lot of nods to you know if you sin this is what will happen you know the the, the people that he deals with the people that die in this movie to an extent uh, for the most part, have all sinned in some capacity. Um, not quite on the on the level of a movie like Seven, but it is in there. <laughs> the the fact that when uh, James Remar's uh, Doctor Gregory finally reveals himself um, in the movie as being Pinhead, uh, when you look at it all throughout the movie, he wears this um, kind of pendant pin on mm. his jacket, which is a cross. At the point that he is revealed as the bad person, the cross is upside down, thus inverting the crucifix, a uh, symbol of you know evil or Satan or corruption. So I mean, I mean, the movie plays into a lot of that. Um, so much so that even at the very end of this movie, the last part that comes up in the credits is a Latin phrase um, from from the Bible to do to do with God as well. So Scott Derrickson doesn't really hide his his cards up his sleeve, he, he kind of plays them down quite yeah. quite openly in the movie. And it's one thing where, in the previous movies, um, knowing Clive Barker's opinions of things like Christianity, he's not a fan. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> uh, he's not a fan. He likes to, he likes to poke for, uh, a lot of fun at it to get someone who would then take the, the, 
the movie and then twist it almost as a kind of biblical morality or a, a, like a, some sort of weird S&M parable um, I think is, is something which none of the rest of the movies do and it makes it wholly unique to this one for, for better or worse um, I also think that the engineer just in general I think when you look at all the other makeup of all the other characters all the other setups the engineers is just quite shit mm-hmm. it's like a it's like a really badly wrapped skin mask uh, with some pretty horrible looking teeth that are not scary at all the character isn't scary um, and when we get the reveal at the end of who that character is uh, who is not even actually the engineer at all uh, but is this idea of the the corruption of innocence um, that message is quite on the nose as well and once again very overtly biblical which I think you don't need in a movie like this uh, I think it leans a bit too heavily into that some of the CGI is pretty shit even for 2000 um, there is a scene where uh, Thorn as a kid rotates round in a chair which he's sat on and it kind of zooms into place and these are graphics that you would have seen in like like the old fashioned game show that I loved when I was a kid called uh, Nightmare um, I'd, like the Brits will know what that is they'll be like oh yeah that show um, Americans <laughs> not so much, Google it though because it was great um, but it kind of looks like a like almost like a blue screen CGI background which hasn't been handled very well which is a bit of a shame Incidentally, the, the the same the reveal of Gregory as Pinhead that CGI is not great either. Oh, uh, the pin the pins on that one that yeah pretty they, bad. Pretty they look, bad. They looked as fake as a lot of the tongues. That was it. the The pins on the transformation and most of the tongue work was just like yeah, the tongue work's horrible. And and these things where a movie leans so heavily into its practical effects for the most part. When you start using CGI, if it's not like of Lucas film level of you know budget, <laughs> then they, they will show pretty quick. And taking it account, this movie is already seventeen years old, which makes me feel old as fuck. Um, a, a lot of this, a lot, a lot of that side of things doesn't really work. I'm with that, and I know, I know for a fact there's going to be people slapping their 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 palms against their heads just now I think the story's really interesting I think it's a, a fun little watch I love the idea of this kind of one off story looking at a particular incident of what Pinhead brings as a as a hell concept this loop which we do experience very briefly with Frank's character in, in Hellraiser 2 where we see all the women who are naked under sheets that he cannot get to, knowing that his lust is sexual. Um, mm. I, I love that idea. I love just the arrogance being broken down in Schaefer's character. This, you know, he's a great chess player, he's a great puzzle solver, he's a magician. He can do all these things. He, he is constantly ahead of the game and then just being plucked in, out and in a position where the game is now not something he controls and seeing that character break down mentally I think is a wonderful concept the kind of neo-noir sort of style of it works really well Um, I think there's a whole hell of a lot to love about this movie Uh, in terms of the the greater canon 
of the, the, the franchise is a part five. I think this does exactly what you want by a part five. It picks up, it kind of sets out the modus operandi for the rest of the series. None of the rest of the series will be a continuation of stories. They'll all be one-off stories from this point onwards. I think it does the right thing um, in that. Now, you can argue that some of the later ones don't manage to do it as well as part five. <laughs> won't disagree with that. Um, but in terms of the canon, I think it does the right thing at the right time. What's your thoughts on this one? Knowing what happens in the first four parts, do you think they made the right decision with part five or do you think they could have somehow linked it more closely with the previous four? I think considering that they were trying to kind of right the ship a little bit and that the story in itself is a story within itself, making too many callbacks to the earlier films might have been bad. I like that there was... Uh, Chat, I've always called him Chatterbox. Uh, just like, you know, Chatterbox making that little cameo from his visit to uh, Silent Hill or something like that. But I think... Uh, <laughs> I think they made the right decision. They could have made a better movie. But... Um, I think, like you said, being as, as middle as you can be in a nine-part series... Uh, I think they made made the right call and it's not its fault that other movies sucked. Yeah. Necessarily. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think you're kind of right there. I think um, it's a weird one uh, because it does kind of wash its hands of the entire series in order to do this one. It makes reference to nothing. It kind of resets things back to what would happen if someone came across the puzzle box and opened it? What would happen to them? So it's almost we lived through that experience, which we only had in relation to Kirsty opening the box or other people opening the box for for quick effect to move a story along. And this one, I, I quite like that idea. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I... I kind of feel like I'm constantly trying to fly the flag for Hellraiser Inferno, and I always <laughs> feel like I'm. There's a great, there's a great, um, a great myth um, about a Danish king called King Canute. Don't know if you're aware of this one, King Canute. Uh, not not off mention of the name. Yeah, you you you'll find this one funny. So King Canute, um, king of Denmark. Um, very much like a lot of these kings back in the, in the Middle Ages felt that they were descended from gods and Canute was no different. Canute thought his power was was omnipotent. He thought he could do whatever he wanted um, and everyone would listen to his commands and there is a great kind of myth of Canute as he walked out towards the sea as a giant wave came towards him and he put out his hand and said stop because that's how confident he was that he could control nature as well. And the, the way flattened him. Um, <laughs> and in a lot of respects, that's how I feel about my defence of Hellraiser Inferno. I feel like I'm King Canute constantly putting my hand out and telling everyone to enjoy, knowing fine well that the wave of hate will tsunami over the top of me uh, very quick and very painfully. <laughs> I expect there's going to be a lot of kickback from people telling me that I've been smoking crack or something, but I don't care. This is yeah. one that I genuinely think does a whole hell of a lot right. Is it a perfect movie? No. 
are there issues? Oh yes, there are many. <laughs> but fundamentally, is it a good Hellraiser movie? I think it is, man. I, I really, really, really do. I think this is not the point at which... I think, considering how part three went, this one is a step in the right direction. Um, so with that in mind, Dern, uh, I need to ask you, is there anything else you want to say about this movie before we grade it? Um, no, well... I can ask you this anytime, but since you're so into metal, there's got to be a band called the Lament Configuration, right? You would have thought. You would have thought. If there isn't, there should be. And I think someone's missing out on a trick. Uh, I don't know if it's maybe copyrighted either. I don't know if there's maybe someone that, mm. like the Weinsteins hold a, a copyright <laughs> over it. Would not fucking surprise me. Um, but not just yeah, that. There, there must be somewhere. And I'll stand next to you and hold the hand out against the wave. I like this movie. I would watch it again. Yeah, I, I, like, this is one. I hadn't seen it in a few years. Watched it genuinely thinking that I, that I was going to watch it again. And the, the hype I had said about how much I actually enjoyed this movie was going to, you know, falter very quickly by about the 10 minute mark. I finished it. I was still at that. I'm still of the same opinion. It's a pretty good movie. I don't, I don't know what all the complaints um, shell out against this movie um at all I, I really don't i don't i don't know what your beef is as they say in my country what's your beef <laughs> um more in england than they do in scotland um Derm, as you may be aware although you've never guessed it in the show contrary to what i thought before we started recording <laughs> um on the podcast under the stairs we run a very simple system it is the netflix grading system now when i say that i mean old school netflix grading not this new thumbs up, thumbs down bullshit percentage thing. We run a very simple, simple grading scale. It is one hated it, two didn't like it, three liked it, four really liked it, and five loved it. Knowing that you can put point fives in there as well, where do you land with Hellraiser Inferno? You said three was liked it and four was liked it a lot? Yep, three is liked it, four is really liked it. I, I would... I would give it a a confident three, two and a half, oh, three. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like I said, I've definitely rewatched much worse films, and uh, yeah, for for being as far down the road in the franchise as it was, I think they did a good job. Excellent, and this is the point that I upset all my listeners. This is a four for me. I really like this movie. <laughs> Really like this movie. Um, and the in the scale of grading my favorite Hellraisers, um, I put this one. I put this one above three, and probably on par with four. I th- I think it's just as good as part four. Um, yeah. Now, there's one more thing we need to take care of. You've never done this before in this show. This is the bit I enjoy the most because it requires me to say nothing. For, for a good <laughs> minute or so. Um, I said at the start there when I introduced you, you have a show. It is a great show. I've guessed it on it twice. People should go and check that out. Um, but how can people check out the Psycho Samantha cast? Well, uh, I post all, all the episodes in uh, facebook.com slash group. Do you say slash or stroke in the UK? Uh, slash. Okay. Uh, Facebook.com slash groups slash Psycho Semanticast. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on Podbean, iTunes, or whatever that's called now, uh, Stitcher Smart Radio, <laughs> uh, PsychosemanticPress.com. 
um, the Psychosemantic podcast uh, and Psychosemantic cast. It should pop up for both, but uh, let's see. Right now, as of recording today, I just dropped the episode with you, uh, Duncan, and Smoke on Starship Troopers. So probably I don't think there's going to be another one that's out by the time that this episode comes out. If it is, it's a commentary with my wife on deliverance where we're going through movies, movies she's refused to watch for some reason or other and uh, seeing if she makes it through them and stuff like that. So come on over to the group. We talk about politics, movies and political movies. And uh, yeah, I I think that's it. That's fantastic. Yeah, like I say, everyone should do that. I genuinely have loved my guest appearances. I believe there is a a, a third installment coming up at some point. Smoke chose the first movie, I chose the second movie, which means you choose the third one to to, uh, uh, finish the unholy triumphant that is guest (laughs) appearances on that show. It's genuinely one that I've I've enjoyed quite quite a bit. And the conversations always go wildly off topic really quick, even more so than other shows have done, which is saying a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great show. People should check it out. Dern, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast Under the Stairs. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Would you like to say goodbye to the listeners? Yeah, uh, thanks again, man. It's been a pleasure. And bye, everybody. <laughs> right, I'm going to take a break. You're going to hear the trailer for the third and final review of this episode is Hellraiser Part 6 aka Deader yes that's right um, no it's not it's Hellraiser Part 6 aka Hellseeker Hellseeker <laughs> which is not the song but it should have been um, Morehead should just continue doing versions of the songs and just changing them uh, to match what Inferno <laughs> Deader you know, hell world. Up next is part number six. You're going to find out who my special guest is after the random selection and the gun sound effect. I'll be right back, ladies and gents, right after this. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. Neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and you never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Which do you find more exhilarating? It's getting hot in here. The pleasure. It's perfect. I prefer pain. Well, what do you think? 
see, right, so this is, like, what we're going to do, basically, is, like, I'll do the count-in as usual, and um, before this bit happens, there's a little sound effect that plays, and it's going to make some computery noises, and then there's a sound of a gun, and then, basically, what we get is the intro music for the show, um, each, like, each guest has their intro music playing and stuff, and then we, we kick into the review, but I, I'm... Chuffed that you could make it, man. It's been ages since anyone heard you on a podcast. So it's gonna I know, it. I know. It's been a while, but if anything's going to get me coming back to do some podcasting while I'm waiting for grave shit to finally get up and fucking running, is talking about Hellbound. I cannot tell you how much I love dude. that film. Dude. The, <laughs> dude. the way, the, what, no, no, no. The way Kirsty in this film she goes from just some some uh some kid basically trying to yeah. survive to like a protector of someone yeah but you know, she becomes all powerful it, like it is it is empowering to see right right man it, like what? no you've got the wrong email it's not it's not hellbound we're doing it's it's part six it's deader uh pardon <laughs> it's not it's not part two it's not um it's not hellbound it's part six it's hellraiser deader Oh, fuck you, dude. Come on. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the one where Kirsty kills people. Yeah. Fuck. Well, fuck. <laughs> it was thrown from the heart, all remember? Right. Uh, dude, dude, give me an hour and a half. I'll be back. All right, welcome to the podcast under the stairs. That was shit, but I love it. Um, yeah, you, you've heard this guy already in this small introduction that we did here. He, um, some would say, luckily pulled, and I say luckily because that person that is laughing whilst number six was drawn from the the bowl and given to Ryan as his number mm. means that they didn't draw number six. So, oh Jesus Christ, dude! What are we doing? <laughs> Why is life so hard? I don't understand, man. Fucking this, uh, this retro was done previously on Gray Shift Radio. Mm -hmm. And if anybody wanted to go back and listen to the Deader review, <laughs> the pain and the <laughs> sorrow coming from everybody's lips. <laughs> and and I I gotta relive it. I got I I I don't I don't even know what to do anymore. The, the, let's, uh, the, let's talk about this fucking movie. The, there is a bit of like fate here, I think, at play. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but this is an actual genuine fact. The very first episode of Graveship Radio that I ever heard um, was your Hellraiser 6 review. <laughs> oh, Christ. Because like, you guys acquired Bo um, mm. kind of early on in that retrospective, and I was like a big fan of Devourer, the podcast at the time, and it was really before me and Bo had properly started talking and stuff, um, and I kind of transitioned over, because we talk about it every Devour episode, oh yeah, we're moving on to part five, oh, we're moving on to part six, so I had to check out this Graveshift Radio, and that was the one I heard, and that was the one that hooked me, because you guys just sounded so demoralised, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of amazing, I was listening to it going, this, this is, this is the sound of anguish, this is mm. the sound of pain, 
this is fucking amazing. This is the epitome of everything that Pinhead wants to put you through in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will not let this film break me this time. It's not going to fucking happen. The only thing I will show is fucking anger. And that's all that's coming out of me for this whole review. If anything has come from this fucking movie, it has, I have now found out, it has sparked the friendship that now we have had for years. Yeah, years now. So I guess there's that's the small little part I gotta like about this film, and that's why we're giving it five out of five. Um, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean this is this is we, this is a, the final review of this episode. So we've already went through like Pinhead in Space. We went through Pinhead in a kind of neo noir movie, <laughs> and now right. we're kind of we're kind of jumping quote unquote back to basics so to speak, uh, with Hellraiser Dead. The first of two movies um, made in this year. Um, and it's... <laughs> where to begin with this one? <laughs> um, it's... It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it, 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 to say frustrating would... <sighs> In fact, it's not. What am I saying? It's not Hellraiser Dead that we're doing, is it? Um, we are doing uh, Hell World. Fucking Hellseeker. Hellseeker. They're all fucking hell names. I'm, right? I'm telling you, and they're all the fucking same. They're all fucking hell names, right? This one's yeah, back to basics. This is this is what they do when they're in the the process of trying to. I mean, this is another infamous one in that the script for this movie is not the script for this movie it's a script for something completely different and they're like you know what we'll do i'm reading this movie here and i'm thinking to myself I, you know as a, a, a as a, a studio here i'm visualizing something i'm visualizing a man with pins in his head can we get a pin-headed man oh we have one already on the books get doug bradley on the phone that's literally what these movies are now there there is nothing nothing about these movies, which is, I mean, at least the first four films kind of tie in together. This one is the first of the hat trick of Rick uh, Botta movies. Um, he does this one, and then he does two movies in the same year, Deader and Hellworld. Um, let's do some synopsis stuff, and let's just get right in about this one, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I, I can already tell that you I can feel the Venom Man, honestly, coming through mm-hmm. Skype. <laughs> Dude, I'm seething. I'm fucking seething right now. You're so angry. It. You're so angry. Right, um, this movie stars Dean Winters, uh, Ashley Lawrence, Doug Bradley, Rachel Hayward, Sarah Jane Redmond, Jodie Thompson, William S. Taylor, Michael Rogers, Trevor White, other folks. Um, like I say, it's um, based on the works of Clive Barker. Carol V. Dupree, apparently, uh, is one of the guys behind writing this piece of shit. Um, the synopsis for this one. A shady businessman attempts to piece together the details of the car crash that killed his wife, rendered him an amnesiac, and left him in possession of a sinister puzzle box that summons monsters. Um, right, right. Now, I, I get the feeling that this is going to be heavily lopsided towards a negative thing but yes but I've been asking everyone but right I've been asking everyone on the show um, to try and think of positives try and focus on some positives before you get to the negative so with that in mind 
having watched this movie again for the first time in, I would say, probably three years since mm. you did your, your Hellraiser retrospective. Yes. Um, sitting down to watch this one again, uh, knowing what you were getting into, um, what is good about this movie? Is there anything good about this movie? Is there anything redeeming out with our friendship? Um, is there anything that redeems this movie? Any small peril of 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 coolness amongst one the thing. shit? Oh, right, one thing. Tell me. One thing. There is only one thing that is good about this film, and that is Ash- Ashley Lawrence mm-hmm. in this film is fucking gorgeous. She 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 grew up nice. She is stunning in this film, but the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> Did I meet my quota? Because that's all I got. Son. <laughs> <laughs> and how about there's no uh, kung fu cowboys? Is, that's there, about it. There is no. I love the kung fu cowboys. <laughs> that's the bit of that movie where I was like, oh, I don't even know where we're going now. <laughs> like I'm strapping myself. I, I, the seatbelt was off earlier. The, the seatbelt is now on. <laughs> yeah, because that film was originally called Kung Fu Cowboys. Kung Fu Cowboys for the win. Uh, I, I actually, I was one of the early, early fans of the original script and got a tattoo saying Kung Fu Cowboys. <laughs> so hard into that, and then they changed it. That's why I got my pinhead tattoo after the fact to cover it up. Um, so uh, let, let me let me throw a couple of things which I think are done well in this movie. All right, um, let's, um, let's hear this bullshit. Come on. <laughs> you are right. Asher Lawrence is gorgeous in this movie. And I would actually go as far to say that Asher Lawrence actually grew up to be a pretty good actress. I, I mean, I've said before, I think she's one of the weaker links in the first movie. I love her character. But as an actress, she's still young. It's her first movie role. And you can tell she's not, she's not a powerful presence. In the second movie... You can see she's slightly more confident as, a, as an actress. Jump on what twelve years or something, and she's she you know she's in a, she's now an established actress. She never went on to do huge things, but she is far more confident in what she's doing. She's a she's a good on screen presence, and we don't get too much of her either, which you know I quite like. Um, I would also say Dean Winters as um, Trevor, really good in this movie as well. What a fucking slimy bastard I don't like him from the first moment I meet him and we follow him all the way through the movie and everything he does just makes me want to see bad things happen to him um, all the way through the movie he's just a total sleazebag and he is as some people would say it's very easy to play a sleazebag I would argue it's not uh, it's easy to do reprehensible things on screen but not do them convincing I think he does it very well well, my only issue with that, and I, and I will, this goes into one of my negatives about this film, mm-hmm. is Trevor as a character, for the for the entire movie, his facial expression doesn't change. <laughs> it's Botox. For the whole movie. <laughs> Literally, he gets hooks in his face, and as the hooks are going in, he's he has a slightly different face, and I think it's just because he's squinting his fucking eyes, okay? But the rest of him... is. It's just, it's that fucking look. He just has this cocky fucking look it does. where he's looking at you. Every bitch that came up to him in this film to jump on his on his stick, he looked at him with the same look, and then he'd look at the horror of something that happened with the same fucking look yeah. over and over again. I like <laughs> this actor. I've yes. always liked him. He's in series that I've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And there's something about him I like, but goddamn, he's not inspired. 
expressive in any way. He, he doesn't have the, the greatest ability to emote. Um, for someone who's spending most of the movie trying to piece together what has happened, he never really looks puzzled either. Um, you know, he doesn't look like he's actually really that concerned if he finds out what happened to his wife overall. Um, I think some of the practical effects are pretty cool in this movie. That they do lean. This is the kind of turning point for leaning into quite a lot of the CGI. But some of the practical effects are pretty cool. Some of the gore effects are pretty gnarly. Some of the actual deaths that we come across, we don't get to see, but we come across, are actually staged quite well. I, I don't think they're terrible. And that's probably about as far as I can go with positives for this movie. Because um, mm. truth be told, this movie is. It's quite bad. Uh, I mean, it's... What they did was, they, they had their first three movies that were like a, a huge Lincoln story, and then they put that fourth one on at the end as a way to close out. Right, no more Hellraisers now, we're killing off Pinhead, all the rest. And then, you know, Dimension's like, well, we could maybe do one. And they do Inferno, and I really like Inferno, and the reason I really like Inferno is because Inferno, to me, feels like what... It's almost like their season of the witch, if you know what I mean. It's like, right, right this is our first standalone instalment of we're just going to have a story that happens and it just so happens that the box is going to be included in this and we're going to link it into the story and it's going to, you know, wrap this idea of someone's personal hell, which, to be honest, is things they flirted with all the way through and we got glimpses of but never got to see what Pinhead actually does to you in your quote-unquote hell. We usually just get to see him at the end show up and tell you that you're about to be torn apart or some shit like that. So we get a, an expansion of that, and that's pretty cool. I quite yeah, like that. I, quite I like, like that, that too. Part yeah. four, uh, you know, um, um, Inferno. I really enjoyed that film. It was the first time they did this personal hell thing. Mm -hmm. It was so when it came out, that was an original thing, and yes. and they did a good enough job with the story. So you found it intriguing throughout, even when Cow Cowboy Funkin' Ninjas came up. <laughs> and once they did that for the preceding films, yeah. they decided to do the same fucking thing. This is the bit that confuses me because you've d you've done that, right? So you have a template of how to do that. Right now what we do is, if you want to continue going on, just insert the box into more interesting scenarios. But let's let's not limit ourselves to present day. The, the beauty of the, the, the toy box is it can go anywhere. It can be, you know, it could be set in the 1800s. Why not something then? You know what I mean? Let's let's move it around. Let's not keep it stuck in this procession of. And this guy's personal hell isn't isn't really is it a hell? Because to to me, what what we get is he sleeps with a woman and then he sleeps with a woman that he wants to sleep with, and after he sleeps with her, she dies. Um, right, that's it. And we've had what. Uh, a couple moments where he's looked in the corner of his eye and he's seen a Cenobite or two. Mm -hmm. We've had a, a uh, an eel come out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pinhead sticks a pin in the back of his neck and he feels the pain for three seconds. That's the only horrific things that happen to this guy. Yeah. And the rest of it is him just wandering around and seeing shit. <laughs> <laughs> talking to Pinhead for five seconds mm -hmm. and getting getting molested by hot women. That's yep. the only thing that happens in this film. 
Yeah, it's weird. It's it's like it's almost as if, and like I say, we know that this is a script that was not written as a Hellraiser script, and Pinhead's been placed in this, and the box has been placed in this movie as a vehicle for the franchise, and you just get this idea, like I just get this idea that no one had watched a Hellraiser movie before this movie was made, like at all. It, it just doesn't feel like I, the, there isn't the kind of weighty tone that comes with a Hellraiser movie. There is no, there is no gravity to anything that happens to this guy. Like in the previous ones, there was always that idea of, um, you know, I have unlocked the gates of hell, and now right. I must close the gates of hell. And this movie, it's. It's literally, oh, my wife died, but I can't remember, but I think I may have set her up to die, but I can't quite remember. And was I having an affair? I'll fuck this woman and find out if I was. Well, yeah, I must have, but now she's dead, so I don't know what I'm doing. Why does this co-worker keep hanging around me? I don't know what he's here for. Um, but it's fine. I'll, you know, I, I, I'll try and trace back some steps here, but I can't really remember what's happened in the places I go, the people aren't there that were there before, but maybe I'll hit on this fucking acupuncture woman because um, she's sexy or, and I'll sleep with her, oh now she's dead um, it's just and I, the, the, I think the one of the biggest crimes of the movie overall is the fact that I think it just doesn't, it has a total identity crisis throughout the whole movie it doesn't know what it wants to be it doesn't know if it wants to be a horror movie it doesn't know if it wants to be a thriller um, it doesn't know if it wants to be a Hellraiser movie it doesn't want to know if it wants to commit to full practical effects or if it wants one of the worst CGI effects I've seen in any of these movies which is the cop when the other cop's oh head my, comes out what the oh fuck my is that God, it's, it's not even explained fucking, it's horrendous there's no fucking uh, what somebody thought that was a good fucking effect somebody looked at that and said you know that's fucking wonderful <laughs> someone someone had watched the lawnmower man back in 1991 <laughs> and decided to fucking use the same patch in this right this would be perfectly fine for job so it's gonna be good for Pinhead. <laughs> it is such a fun and the thing about that that particular thing that i really really hate is there there is no indication as to like at the end of this movie right we can kind of briefly touch on something. So basically, we have this businessman, insurance salesman, maybe, uh, who we find out is actually married. He married Kirsty in the future um, when Kirsty's all grown up. And he's a bit of a dictator. He cheats on her constantly. Um, and through the story, we find out that he somehow manages to acquire the box and then thinks it'll be really fun to give the box to Kirsty, and we, we kind of understand that Kirsty has divulged some of her past, I'm not all, but she has mentioned about this fucking terrifying puzzle box, so he gets it for her, tries to force her to open it, she won't do it, um, and we think throughout this movie that there, there was an accident, there was an argument with the car, it was driven off the road, and she has died, and he has lived. But because two and a half years before this movie came out, The Sixth Sense came out, um, mm. the twist in this movie is actually Kirsty survived. It was Kirsty that set him up. And it's Trevor that died. But 
the real reason behind it all is Kirsty actually did open the box when he asked her, like, she unfortunately opened it. Pinhead came to her as he'd done before, was all very much, oh, Kirsty, you know, <laughs> like, we meet again at last, you know, and, and she's like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Why did I agree to do this movie? And he's like, <laughs> and he's like, for the same reason I did for the money. Um, it's all about the money, the Benjamins, Kirsty Benjamins. Um, and basically, she does another deal because she's the only one that seems to be able to haggle with Pinhead in any of these movies. And Pinhead somehow likes to hear her offers. Right, right. You know, it's. I, I, he must. It might be a uh, Hannibal Lecter curse of uh, fucking uh, Clarice moment there. Yeah. I don't know. Every but, time, uh, every time, and the thing is, the last two times he has made a deal with her, she's gotten away. So I'm right. thinking to myself, no deals this time, Kirsty. Yeah, especially when you listen to him. When she first goes in there, he literally says that he manipulated things, mm -hmm. Pinhead manipulated things, and set it up to have this card go to Trevor mm -hmm. so that way he would visit to get that box to bring back to her because he wanted her because she rubbed that box and it, she, it was fucking time to pay Yeah. and then he takes another deal <laughs> yeah like two seconds after like I have set a grand scheme Kirsty in order to track you down over the last 20 years and finally I have my opportunity to take you to hell and she's like that how about we do a deal and he's like I accept your deal he's <laughs> <laughs> like the worst the worst haggler ever he's just shit at it and she she's clearly really good at it um, and the deal that she makes is instead of and I don't know where this number comes from either instead of her one soul she will deliver unto him five souls Oh, I paid attention. I'll tell you where this number comes from. Thank you. We have three women mm -hmm. that Trevor was fucking on the side. Right. We have the guy that he works with who was go pl was planning to kill her with him mm -hmm. to take her insurance money because apparently she has money from the family of the Cottons. Yep. And um, Trevor himself. That's five. This is this has made the. <laughs> The woman, the girl that you saw become a woman and fight and be one of my favorite horror heroines, mm -hmm. become a premeditated murderer, <laughs> multi-mass murderer. If you look, it shows back with each death that he has had like, oh, little glimpses. Oh, this girl, I've just fucked her and she's trapped to a chair now. It says... Kirsty strapped this chick to a chair and suffocated one girl with a bag. Mm -hmm. She stabbed the masseuse in the fucking head. <laughs> and it wasn't like a light, it wasn't just like a light tap. Like, he had to, like, put his foot down and, like, there was effort there to remove that. This she stabbed it down to the fucking base of the handle through this <laughs> head. Alright? Then she shot somebody else. <laughs> And it like point blank in his fucking face. <laughs> and then shot her husband in the side of the fucking head. Yep. That's Kirsty Cotton for you. Yep. This is why. This is fucking why. <laughs> this is the worst Hellraiser film. I don't care if fat fucking wannabe pinhead is in part nine. <laughs> 
and they're all going to fucking Tijuana. I don't fucking care. I don't care if Pinhead goes to fucking space. I don't care if there's an internet fucking game where suddenly Superman's getting blown and Pinhead shows up with Bishop the Android. This makes Kirsty fucking Cotton a fucking manipulative fucking murderer. Yeah, Kirsty Cotton Bundy's on your name. Right, that's the whole fucking thing. That is unforgivable. Mm. That cannot be forgiven. This movie, and, 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 ooh, ooh, here's the topper. Uh-huh. They talked to her after this film came out. They talked to Ashley Lawrence. And they said, how do you feel? How does it feel knowing <laughs> that your character is now a multiple fucking murderer? <laughs> and she said... Oh, that was just a hallucination. No, it wasn't. No, no. I she think... obviously didn't watch the film. That's what Boda told her. Oh, you're <laughs> not really doing this. You're not. Trust me. And this movie comes out, and all of a sudden, Kirsty is a fucking dead body. Oh, fuck's sake! Can you imagine? She's like, uh, you imagine the conversations. Will you come back and reprise this role? Well, only if you know. We have to play, play fair to the character, yes we'll play it fair to the character you know, because Kirsty's the good person here, she's Pinhead's nemesis yeah of course, Pinhead's nemesis good character, yeah we love this character and and we're going to, yep, yep it's all going to be a hallucination, you're going to get fun kill some folk, but hallucination, hallucination and then she closes the door and they're like sucker that's, that's exactly that and tell me any of these other Hellraiser films that have come before or come after has had that big of an offence None of them's done. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. I, I will, I will concede to you, Ryan Lewis, that this is unforgivable. It is unforgivable because it's a mediocre movie at best. And then when you, when you attack, I mean, we can let Bro- uh, you know Doug Bradley off with returning in bad movies because he's playing Pinhead. And and I will say it this way. He's generally the best thing about any of these movies. He speaks very little, but what he does is delivered with the sort of gravitas that you want from Pinhead. Pinhead could literally be giving you instructions on how to make banana bread, and it would still sound (laughs) terrifying. First, you get the banana, and you smash it. You smash (laughs) it with hell's wrath until it is pulp. Grab the banana peel and tear it apart. Release the flesh. You know what I mean? Like, 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 literally, you know, bacon in an oven as hot as hell's flame. You know, anything anything that he did would, you know, he he delivers it with, with a degree of theatrics that the character requires. And as such, even if it's a shitty movie, he's usually the best thing about it. Yeah, he carries a gravitas that no one else on film in this, in the, any of these films, can yeah. carry. He's, he, yeah, he's he, the thing you want to watch, right? On the flip side, we have the return of a character who's not been it since the first two, and like you say, she was the, she's the pure spirit, she's the the, the source of good, and they corrupt her. They corrupt, like she, she has the body count in this movie. Like right. Pinhead kills no one. No one. <laughs> Pinhead he kills. Does, no one. He takes no one to hell. It is all Kirsty. Kirsty's Kirsty's cutting around like Jake Bussey from the Frighteners. I got me a score of five. You know what I mean? It's it's fucking it's right. So yes, on that point, 
I cannot disagree with you. This movie has probably the biggest crime. It was recast in Pinhead, but that's a different story. The biggest crime in the Hellraiser franchise is what they do to this character. However, I will say, I still don't think it's the worst movie. I still don't think it's the worst oh, movie. And I, we're, we're, I mean, semantically, we're speaking about measurements of like, like, like a fly's testicle here, you know, mm. of, of of difference between this and some of the ones that I dislike more. I think what the movie really struggles with, I mean, really, really struggle with, out with the fact that you know you are you're essentially destroying the legacy of a character. She can never like they could never make another Hellraiser movie and have the return of you know Kirsty Cotton as a character because. By this point, she's probably killed a hundred people. Um, she's a, she's basically a cinematic Paul Pot, just walking about the place. You know, we, we we can't we can't have that that ship has sailed. But I think furthermore on top of that is a couple of things we've listed. <clears throat> the the very nature of what Hellraiser symbolises is gone in this movie. It's the first one that it has a complete loss of identity because, like you said, it's not Pinhead isn't doing anything in this movie at all. He's the, he's like an apparent ringleader. The only thing Pinhead does kill people in this movie, but it's a false flashback. It's like it's like they've muddled up the the Ashley Lawrence part and the Doug Bradley part. Um, so so all the deaths we think Pinhead commits, he doesn't commit it. It's Ashley Lawrence, so that doesn't happen. He she's gifting souls to him to take back to hell. When has Pinhead ever wanted that? Never. You no, know, he has it the is power about if you read the book and or you watch the original two films. It is all about the desire to solve this thing yes it is it is the desire to solve it and there is the need to have the unknown and that's gone it's yeah. completely gone it's not there the relevance of hellraiser as as a as a story that is intriguing is fucking gone, gone. and all you have is a figurehead of a once frightening character reflected in a mud puddle yeah I, that's you know the frustrate there's so many frustrating scenes in this in this movie where i'm like that why are we doing this why are we doing this from the moment pinhead appears in this movie we do not need to see pinhead in a puddle just let's see pinhead <laughs> right what? never in a puddle yeah eight hours it took to put that makeup on why is the camera not on him why is the camera on a puddle you know what i mean like doug bradley sat for eight hours getting that done to him like come on I, there's there's this idea as well in the movie where, like I say, Pinhead doesn't kill people. But the Hellraiser movies, although it does ramp up in the in the later instalments, it's like you say there it is the pursuit of of some sort of fetish or knowledge or something that brings you to the box, and only the person that opens the box is supposed to be targeted to bring back. The fact that she is she's killing ostensibly four people out with her husband who don't even know what the box is, don't maybe don't even believe in hell, um, have not pushed the desires to that extent. The fact that they're the ones that are getting taken away doesn't make any sense. And then if we fling on top of that, furthermore, the, the end of this movie 
doesn't really, in the grand scheme of things, make a lot of sense either. So, like I was saying, the, the big reveal here is that Kirsty's alive and actually Trevor's dead. And what we have seen is, like, the last seconds of of Trevor's life where he has... He is, like, clung, possibly, um, or he's in purgatory or something. Not explained. Not like the previous movies where you know clearly. Um, and we see his body getting moved from the, you know, from the, the river. Um, we see uh, an eel taken out his throat, which is a nod back to other ones. Uh, the, the other scene earlier on where he coughed up an eel. And all these different characters are around him who have interacted with him in his dream. Or his, his death throes or whatever. They're all in real life. And no one explains the two-headed cop. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, we spent no. money making that CGI scene. Granted, it looks like they spent pennies, but <laughs> you know, there's no explanation for that at all. But there's ex- so, right. they try and explain other people, like right. who have lesser roles. So they try and explain the nurse who has two conversations with him in the movie, but she gets an explanation as to you know she likes to talk to the dead. Um, She's fascinated by that. That's why he... But they don't... Why the cop thing? At all. It doesn't make it... it, It's so frustrating because we spent so much time with him going down through these... It just makes... It it fucking frustrates me, Ryan. You see the good... um, The the good cop, okay? Um, He's there. And he's the one that gives courtesy to the box tonight. You don't see the other guy. The bad cop. He's not there at the scene. You see the one guy that was the doctor that told him he didn't want to give him any more meds and was kicking him out, and he was there. He was the coroner. And then you got the the woman that's talking to the dead. All right, and so you see everybody in in that was in his hallucination except bad cop. So what is that? Just a fucking fabrication on top of these things. And also, how is he going to incorporate these people into his hell when he was shot in the fucking head and drowned in a river? He's not seeing these motherfuckers. He's not hearing any of these motherfuckers. He's gone. All right. So that is just like, well, I'm going to write this in. Isn't this going to be fucking witty as shit? All right. Isn't this going to be intelligent? Somebody's going to be like, oh, my God, that's so fucking clever. And I'm sorry. There's got to be people right now that are going to listen to this and going to be like, oh, it's not that bad. It is that bad. I'm sorry. It is. This movie is a giant fuck you to Hellraiser. That's all it is. It's like almost like a Hellraiser parody. Yeah. In a way, because the, the, the serious nature of the original two films, it's it's dude, you could taste it. It's so fucking serious. Yeah. All right. And yeah, there's moments in it that, you, you know, you might laugh at. You're like, oh, you know, that's funny. But it's super dead serious. It's ominous. OK, there's a feeling of dread that floats through those two movies. And in this movie, it's like a big, giant fucking joke. <laughs> Down to, by the way, your heroine. Yeah, she know she kills five people. Yeah, you know it's it's. What else can we say about this fucking movie, son? I really, think, uh, I will. I will give you this. I will give you this. I actually think I dislike this movie more now than I did before I started this review. My job is done. I think. <laughs> I think. I think you. You have. You have made a very good case, sir. Like a really, really, really good case. Um, and we've answered my final question. My final question was going to be: since we've discussed the good, we've discussed the bad. The last one was: where does it fit in terms of the canon of Hellraiser movies? You know, where does where does this movie fit? And basically, what we've said is: this has killed it. 
Yeah, it's killed it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't. It's not the same world. It's not the same anything. This is like the fucking ugly redheaded stepchild of the fucking Hellraiser franchise. And the problem is, like we've stated, there are other ones coming yeah. that are worse <laughs> made films. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Hellworld is a fucking abortion. Yeah. But yeah. this one is the first offender. And it makes the biggest offense. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think this one is the one that 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 commits a cardinal sin that's almost unforgivable. Um, and I'll, I'll add one thing. Okay, there's people are gonna be like, no, 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 no. It was Hell Hellraiser fucking Revelations that has the biggest offense because Doug Bradley's not in it. Mm -hmm. But I have one thing to say to that, and my one simple thing is this. It's Doug Bradley's fucking fault he's not in the fucking movie because he refused to sign an agreement not to talk <laughs> the fucking movie. And that's the only reason he's not in that piece of shit because we have seen these films. We know how low this franchise goes. It sinks to a fucking mud puddle. Maybe that's why he was fucking in it. And he was all but fine to take the fucking check for every single one of them. And you know what? Hell World is, uh, fucking Revelations is pretty much a really shitty remake of the first one. <laughs> but God damn it, he would have done it if they didn't make him sign that shit. And we all know it. And if you say you don't know that for a fact, fuck you. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> would have been in this movie. He would have been in that shit, and then all of you would have been like, "That's horrible." But Doug Bradley was great. <laughs> and God damn it, it's so much better than Hellseeker. <laughs> That's what you would say. Oh God. Oh. oh, this review's been amazing. It's been actually. I think this might be my favorite review thus far. Uh, I, I think. I think what we have gathered here. I think what we've gathered here is that. Ryan needs an outlet. He needs an outlet to vent some frustrations and chat online. If only he was the host of a podcast, which will be coming back very soon. And I, through force of will, I will make sure that within the next month there is a Graveshift Radio episode dropping. Um, even if it's just me and you sitting chatting, very much like we've done tonight, there will be a fucking Graveshift Radio episode coming. But, I mean... Tell us, you have like a, a, an archive of some of my favourite podcasts ever recorded and there's a good chance, Podcast Under the Stairs has a lot of new listeners, a lot of people that have come after the days that I was involved with Graveshift and certainly, certainly um, people that don't know the, the stellar work that was happening on that show well before then. Um, before you go, before we grade the movie and before you go... Sell people the show. What is Graveshift Radio? Other than the fact that Graveshift Radio is returning, Graveshift Radio is a horror-based fucking review show that also intermingles fucking some, you know, hearty fucking rock to metal music and fucking who knows. I'm going to throw some hip-hop in there just to be difficult. And um, it's just three to four guys having a good time talking about movies and the size of their dicks. And it's <laughs> nothing but entertaining. It's the kind of show that my mother took a listen to at one time and said, well, if it makes you happy, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. If, if you have enjoyed anything that's happening now on this review, 
this is a small taste of what Graveshift Radio was. And Duncan's part of it. Yeah. And John Rhodes is part of it. And we've had a number of uh, episodes with Bo before he left the show. And we've had guest hosts and everything else. It's just a fun show. I'm pretty fucking proud of it. If you want to hear an episode which has Ryan as angry um, as he sings just now without listening to another review of Hellseeker, which you should check out anyway because that episode's fucking brilliant, I recommend that you take a little listen to the Exorcist retrospective we do and then listen to him talk about the heretic oh my christ and, and after you're done listening to that one put on the um put on the people under the stairs episode. oh man put that one on there because i had the fond joy of threatening to burn the show to the ground you were because... gonna burn that show to the ground man you were gonna burn that motherfucker down and uh, you know it's just good times uh, dude it's making me think I gotta make a fucking trailer for that show for Christ's sakes there's so many clips I could throw together either way it'll happen so Gracious Radio's coming back go check out the back catalog it's funny if you dig it give us a review it'll give me some motivation yes yes coming back right I, I thought we'd give ourselves a little break so you could calm down a little bit before I ask you using the Netflix grading system one being hated it, Ryan, two didn't like it, three liked it, four really liked it, and five loved it. What score would you give Hellraiser, Hellseeker from 2002? Well, Christ, I think with all the reasons that I have stated that this film is a fucking one. Yeah. It's a one. I think that's fair. In fact, if I say we could do point fives, would you give it a point five? I would give it a point five. Let's I honestly would. Let's do it. It's a point fucking five because it is so offensive to the series. There we go. There we go, ladies and gents. I'm going to come in right beside you. Um, I would have given this probably a one and a half <laughs> before this <laughs> review, and now we're at the end of it. I'm 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 a point five with my buddy Ryan here. Um, Ryan, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast under the stairs. We will have you back soon, and people will have new Graveshift Radio real fucking soon to sink their teeth into. But this is um, this, ladies and gentlemen, was the final review of this episode. So I'm going to take a very short break just now. When I come back. You're going to hear um, me close out the show. Oh, sad face. But remember, there's a whole other episode of Hellraiser uh, movies still to come. And all three of them are just horrible. So I'll be right back right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been episode 111. This is the second instalment of our Russian Roulette retrospective looking at the Hellraiser franchise. We covered Hellraiser's part four, five and six on the show. Hopefully, hopefully you're enjoying this series as much as I am recording them. They've been a ton of fun to work with. Um, yeah, <laughs> so much fun. My guests are surprisingly chirpy. I think it's because they're only having to do one movie at a time. Um, as opposed to doing the entire franchise like I have to, uh, which makes him lucky, or unlucky, because there's three really bad movies still left to do, and three guests are going to have to tackle them with me, and you will hear that instalment next Monday. Now, like I said at the start of this episode, there was an announcement, the 2017 Teapots Top 10 has been announced, it'll be coming late July and running for 11 weeks this year, the reason behind that is I'm doing a brand new idea 
in terms of collating data um, from not only hosts but you, the listeners. We are going to be running a, a full top 10 series on the 1970s as a decade. Um, I'm going to be joined by five special guest hosts who will join me two times during that series, covering two completely different years within that decade. Both of us will compile a list of five movies from that, that particular year that we think are the best horror movies. We will then debate on each episode, narrowing it down to two movies, just two movies, to carry forward from that year, because we're playing a little game of Noah's Ark Rules. The Noah's Ark rules on the podcast under the stairs are only two can go through for each year, which makes it really difficult because certain years have an incredible bevy of fantastic horror movies and we're only allowed to take two through from each year. When we get to the very end, when we've done all 10 years within that decade, we will have a list of 20 movies. My five special guests will return on a round table where we will have all numbered in order what we think is the correct position assigning 20 points to number one, 19 to number two, etc. Number 20 would get one point. And I will create a giant list and on that show we will release and debate in a round table fashion our top 10 from that decade. But that's not all we're doing. We're going to put it out to you guys, the listeners, to also score up as well and send them in. So not only will we have a host list of the top 10, but we will also have a listeners list of the top 10. And then to close it all out, a massive undertaking on my part where I will curate all the numbers between the listeners and the guest hosts um, all together for one definitive T-Putts Nose Arc Top 10 of the 1970s. It's going to be fantastic. A lot of work to go into that, but I think we're all going to have a ton of fun. As always, there's a multitude of ways to check out the podcast under the stairs. If you're checking us out through Apple Podcasts, please rate us and reviews over there. It takes seconds to do. It means the world to us. It's free and it is probably the best thing you can do for us on iTunes because it promotes the show to a place where people can see it, download it and interact. Um, if five stars, for example, um, with comments... Uh, a little review as well, it really, really does mean the world to us. And it's good to see when you're checking out podcasts how people rate things and why they say the podcast is good as well. So thank you for everyone that has already done that as well. And for those that haven't got around to it yet, please do that. Also remember to subscribe to that feed on iTunes so you always get the episodes as and when they are released and you get access to the entire back catalogue as well. You can check us out through Stitcher Smart Radio, SoundCloud, um, Google Play, and tune in now so we're on a variety of different platforms please visit our facebook group page it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast go across to our website tputzcast.com and at the bottom of that page there you can sign up for a little newsletter and the newsletter came out yesterday so a brand new newsletter should have been out there just advising you what's coming up over the next couple of weeks all you have to do is put your email at the bottom of that page submit it and you will be added to our fortnightly newsletter um there we have two twin prongs of social media sexiness admin by the baz on the twitter and instagram both can be checked out at tputzcast right i'm getting out of here this episode ran much longer than i was expecting we have one more hellraiser episode still to release in one week's time thank you very much for all the love and support ladies and gents out there in the the greater tputz community it really does mean a lot to us you guys are fucking phenomenal and but until i speak to you again wherever you are whatever you're up to and whatever the time zone is please take care of yourselves out there this is duncan mccleese broadcasting live from under the stairs
and I'm signing off.